Jersey. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Now live, here's Mike Gill. Happy President's Day, one and all. This is the Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. I'm your host, Mike Gill. Josh Henning is producing today's show. You out there? Well, you are out there because nobody else is working except for us idiots. <laughs> Thanks for the uh, the listen today. Everybody is uh, out and about. I drove around a little while ago, and you could tell that the day off is uh, quite appreciated by many, except for the people who uh, told us to be here at work today. Don't take the day off work. All right, we're doing it. Uh, we'll do our best today to try to work while everybody's got the fun day off, President's Day. Holy moly, you've got a lot to get into, though. That All-Star game last night was unwatchable, so I didn't watch it. That's what I did. I didn't watch so I really have no thoughts on why the game was so bad. I just looked at the box score. I looked at the highlights and said, you know what? This game's not for me. The three-point shot has become the blessing and the curse, right? It was put in. It helped the game. And it is the very thing that is destroying the game. There's a lot more that's destroying the game. But usually something that fixes something is also something that destroys something. Because we then rely on it so much. You know, when they talk about someone who maybe wants to lose weight, right? They would say, eat in moderation. Just don't go overboard. You can have certain things. Just do it in moderation. And that will help you. The problem is most people can't control themselves to eat in moderation and they say, this is really good. And then they keep eating it and eating it and eating it. And then they gain a lot of weight. The NBA said this three-point shot's kind of cool. And they didn't use it in moderation. They just kept using it and using it and using it. And now they've turned into an obese product. The NBA's product is horrible. The game last night is a microcosm of what the basketball society has become, and it's an unwatchable product, and last night's game was just the tip of the iceberg. Use the three-point shot in moderation, and you can have the three-point shot. If you shoot too many threes, if you eat too many bad foods out of moderation, you're going to gain weight. Well, last night, they basically, the button went popping off the shirt. The pants couldn't get wrapped around. The belt was too tight. It was a obese product last night. Guys pulling up from half court thinking, yeah, this is cool. Eh, not cool. Game was unwatchable. The only thing I watched last night, I wanted to feel like a young kid again for just a little while. You know, Back in the day when the baseball all-star game and you had everybody being represented and like they were like, hey, here's Mike Schmidt. And you were like, that's my guy. I wanted to have that feeling for just a couple of minutes last night. So I watched the introductions. I just wanted to see Maxie. Like, okay, that's our guy, Tyrese Maxie. And then I felt like poor Maxie is in this horrible product and I feel for him. Like... 
Nobody cares that Maxi made the all. People do care, but it's not the same. It's not like he got introduced and there was this overwhelming sense of pride of that's our guy. That's our guy, Maxi. Because the game is so diluted and so poor that Maxi making the all-star game almost feels like, eh, so what? This product now. That's not to take away from the stars that do play because the talent in the league is probably at its height. I mean, that Western Conference team, for them to lose a game is embarrassing. I mean, come on. You have LeBron James, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant all on the same team, and somehow you gave up over 200 points. Do you have any self-pride? I mean, seriously, you're LeBron James. You're one of the greatest players that ever walked planet Earth. And you are part of a team that is the only team in NBA history in the All-Star game to give up over 200 points. I mean, Luka Doncic had no, (laughs) he had no desire to be there. Nikola Jokic is like, what am I doing here? Because you know why? Those guys are embarrassed about the players they have to play with. Because they actually want to play, and they see the clown show that they got stuck in, and they said, I'm not even being a part of this mess. We have completely lost our way with this game. And it was supposed to be, we're the best, let's go show it. And instead, you're now telling young kids, you know what's a great idea? Pull up from half court. That sounds like a great idea. Let me throw the ball off the backboard on a fast break only to get stuffed by the rim. That would be perfect for us to show the young kids that are watching this game today. Well, the problem was, I'm sure, not too many young kids even cared. I tried to say to my girlfriend's boys, hey, look, Maxie's getting introduced. And they basically yawned it off as of, okay, so what? And they're not wrong. Because the NBA and its quote-unquote stars have destroyed what used to be a great, awesome celebration of the game. That's not a celebration of the game. That's an overindulgence on something. How many three-point shots were taken last night? Are you kidding me? This isn't the three-point competition. We had that on Saturday night, and that was actually somewhat entertaining. We didn't ask for the three-point competition to be entered into the game on Sunday. But that's what we're getting. And it's a microcosm of the society that we live in, in this dumpster fire that is AAU basketball. Are you happy? Because this is the product that you are now sending to the NBA. Like Kobe once said, AAU basketball is a joke. And now it is infiltrating the NBA. And we have a joke to watch on Sunday, which should be a celebration of the game. Instead, we got that. So, again, I watched a game last night. I wanted to, and I turned it off three minutes in. And it's not a get-off-my-lawn type. It is, you are the very best players in the world, and you're not acting like it. That's not fun. That's not entertainment. Yeah, this is real fun, watching people pull up for 148 three-pointers. Woohoo! That's not basketball. It's a layup line. I didn't sign up to watch a layup line. I want to watch the best players in the world compete against each other. But unfortunately, that's not what we're getting. And I'm 
not sitting here saying that anybody has the answers because every answer comes down to the same thing, money. Well, maybe if we pay them to play the all-star game, holy mackerel. If I'm one of the players that has the honor of being named to that all-star game, and you have to tell me I need to be paid a certain amount of money to play in that game, how do I look at players like Larry Bird and Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and the other greats in the eyes and say, you guys made this game fun, but I want to be paid to do it. It's a sad, sad, sad society that every answer comes back to the same thing. How much are you going to give me to do my job? And that game last night was a total sham. It was a total joke. And unfortunately, a game like that, it's an exhibition. So you might say, hey, it's all for fun. It is. But guess what? It used to be a moment to grow the game. Young kids used to watch that for the reason I said last night. I want to see Tyrese Maxey. This should be an awesome opportunity for him. And instead, I felt like Maxey kind of got lost in the sauce. His first NBA game and you're kind of or all-star game and you're kind of like, eh, okay. You know, Carl Anthony Towns scored 50 last night. Is any going to be anybody going to remember that? Seriously. Are you going to remember that Carl Anthony Towns scored 50 points in an all-star game last night? Wouldn't that be something if somebody scored 50 in an all-star game, you would be like, oh my God, this guy scored 50 on the biggest stage. And it got laughed at as a joke. He shot 35 shots last night. Carl Anthony Towns. Are you kidding me? You know, in the game last night, Lillard scored 39 points. He was 11 of 23 from three-point range. The Eastern Conference shot 97 threes last night. The West shot 71. That was the All-Star game last night. 97 and 71. There's probably people driving around. And if you need to actually pull over to the side of the road to add up how many threes were actually taken, that tells you maybe the game got a little out of hand. In what was supposed to be a celebration of the very best players, it put egg on the very best player's face last night. And it's a sad, sad statement of where this game was and what it meant and where it is now. Yeah, it's an exhibition game. And yeah, it's supposed to be fun. But I wonder, and I ask the people out there that are listening today, was that enjoyable? Am I wrong? Am I way off base on this? Did you have a good time watching that last night? Did you have a good time watching the three-point competition break out in the middle of the All-Star game? Or would you have rather seen the very best players put on the best show that they possibly could? That's what I was hoping for. And I saw five minutes into that game last night, I wasn't getting that, and then I went elsewhere. I don't know what the ratings were. I don't know what it suggests. But sadly, guys like Kevin Durant and LeBron James, those guys were secondary figures in the biggest stage of the season. Now, I know LeBron has the ankle problem. He only played 14 minutes last night. Durant played 25, so you saw a little bit of him. 
But it certainly was not a game that was very enjoyable for someone who grew up watching that game with a lot of, hey, that's my guy. There's Allen Iverson. There's Allen Iverson. He's the star amongst the stars. Joel Embiid a couple of years ago, we said he was the star amongst the stars. Last night, all we had was a cloudy night and all the stars were unvisible from the street. 609-403-0973. You know, when you have a game where Luka Doncic, who's one of the best scorers this league has, one of the most exciting players there is, he was disinterested last night. He was embarrassed that he had to be a part of this thing. Nikola Jokic wanted to be anywhere else but where he actually got voted to be a part of. And he did his duty. He showed up. He played 23 minutes. And by the way, the 23 minutes he played, he had 13 points and nine assists. I mean, he was trying to make, to to keep this thing from being a mockery. But you see Doncic and Jokic saying, I don't want to play AAU basketball. This is a joke. And they just abstained from being a part of this mockery. You know, Halliburton last night, that was fun. He's at his home. Are you kidding me? I mean, he's basically traveling from half court to the same spot on the three-point arch the whole time. There was three fouls called in the game. The officials finally did their job. They stayed out of it. I heard it suggested that the guys who got the fouls called on them last night, one, Nikola Jokic, the other, Kawhi Leonard, and a third from Trey Young, should be fined for the fact that they got called for fouls. Do you believe there was three fouls called in the game last night? Um, now, some text messages coming in, 609-403-0973. Mike, you are so right about this whole NBA All-Star game. I hate to be this old get-off-my-lawn guy. The only thing I'm interested in this whole week is the three-point contest. I didn't even get to watch that because of my business. I was more entertained in Seattle City this weekend. Don't care if I watch another NBA All-Star game and grew up loving the game of basketball. That's from Willie. Yeah, Willie, you know, I actually, on Friday's show, I said I had no interest in the All-Star game. Okay, And then it's Sunday, and I'm like, all right, you know, I did some things. I got home, and I was like, you know what, Maxie's playing. I want to watch the introductions. I'll watch the introductions, and I'll give this game a chance. You know, as I said at the Open, you get this like, hey, that's my guy, Maxie. You know, because the NBA is different from baseball. It's not a rite of passage that your guy is going to make the All-Star game. Right? Baseball everybody's team gets represented in the all-star game. So you get that guy every year. That's your guy. He gets his name. He tips his cap. He's wearing your team's uniform. And it is what it is. Basketball, you know, you might not get a guy make the NBA all-star game. You might go years before your team gets represented on all-star weekend. And it was kind of cool. Hey, here's our guy. Now, last night, Embiid did get introduced. He was not there. He did make the all-star game. But Maxie was there, and here's this young kid. He's comes out of nowhere. He's the 21st pick, and he ends up making the All-Star game. This is a success story. Guys drafted in the 20s making the All-Star game at that young of an age. I mean, this is like, wow. And he gets introduced, and it was just kind of like, okay, there's our guy, and then this game broke out. Like, I've seen better runs at the JCC and Margate, guys competing harder than I watched last night. I mean, there was no evidence that I'm watching the very best players in the world playing last night. None. I mean, you literally could have said, these are every team in the league's 15th man. And this is what you're getting. 
Now, again, Gildas Alexander, 7 of 10 from 3. Great night. Halliburton, 10 of 14 from 3. Okay, those guys shot it well. Jalen Brown, 6 of 12, 50% from 3. at 36 points coming off the bench. All right, good game. Carl Anthony Towns, 23 of 35 from the field. All right, there you go. He scored 50. 50! But then you had Devin Booker, 1 for 7. Curry, 4 for 13. By the way, Towns was 4 of 13. Luka Doncic, 1 for 6 from 3. It was just, at the end of the day, and again, maybe it got better. I only gave it five minutes, and I said, I, I'm out of here. I am out. It did not get better. It did not get better. And at the end of the night, uh, a couple more text messages. Tom from the Villa says, Mike, it was a sad affair. I turned it off. I would periodically check back in. It was a three-point contest with an occasional dunk mixed in. No defense, traveling all night long. I was surprised they didn't decide to just start lobbing full-court shots. Yeah, they did half-court shots, but the full-court shots, maybe that's next year. Hey, we're just evolving. Again, I go back to the three-point shot was supposed to be something to kind of add to the game. In fact, instead, it is completely taken over the game. And we're at a point now where outside of limiting the amount of three-pointers that you're allowed to shoot, in a game, like I suggest, like, hey, you can only take three point shots in the last two minutes of a quarter. That's it. Or you only get so many three point shots in each half. Like maybe you can only take eight three point shots in the first half and 10 three point shots in the second half. And that's it. So you have to strategically figure out. And of course, everybody would wait until the end of the game to start using them. It's like a, it's like the challenge. You have to hold on to your challenge. So you can only shoot those 10 threes in the last, like, four minutes of the game. Something to that effect. So it it always feels like um, you are looking for ways to evolve these all-star affairs and these all-star games. But quite frankly, there is no need for these games any longer. The NBA All-Star Weekend... That's why it exists. It's who's the sponsor? What city can they take over for the weekend? Get a whole bunch of television dollars. You know, TNT gets the game. They put the whole weekend on and it fills up some programming for them. But other than that, it's probably more harm than it is good. You know, if you're a basketball coach, I can imagine the high school basketball coaches out there just absolutely grimacing at what they're watching. Meanwhile, the AAU coach is probably just ecstatic at what they saw. Kobe Bryant, and I said this earlier, said it. The AAU has destroyed the game, and that last night was tough to watch. It really was. 609-403-0973. Here's another thing. Mike, you're right. Why do they start the All-Star game so late? I, I said this on Friday. You said it in this text message. He said tip at 3. I said the same three, same thing. Play the game at 3 o'clock. Last night that game didn't start till 8.45. It, uh, you know, it, it, it's ridiculous to put that garbage on, to make us wait 45 minutes to start that game with all the introductions and all this and all the hoopla. To put on what is a awful product is, is insanity. Um, 
It, it is what it is. I mean, and, and maybe there's people out there that liked what they saw, liked that entertainment. I would love to hear the two sides here of how many people out there are like, hey, no, that's what we want to see. We want to see the best guys in the world shooting 97 three-point shots. Then you got the game you wanted last night. 609-403-0973. You say all that, but as soon as someone got hurt for playing hard, you'll be saying, did they have to uh, play so hard to be, this is supposed to be an all-star game. Um, there are ways that you can do this. Like all-star games in the past, you used to see guys play, do their stuff, but then it got really competitive late in games. You know, the last couple minutes of the game, these guys started to lock down and really play. I can't remember an injury in the All-Star game. That's not to say that it can't happen, but come on. Let's not act like the game we saw last night is what we've seen throughout history. We have seen the best players in the world showcase their talents while also showcasing that they have the ability to lock down the other best players in the world and that you're not scoring on me. You want to score on somebody else, go for it. But we have seen many examples of late in games where the East would say, the West, you're not beating us. The last two minutes of this game, we're going to lock it down. So if that text message can find me an example of where there's been an injury in an all-star game, and you're right, if it happens, but I would say this, if it happens in today's all-star atmosphere where that game's a joke, you're going to put that game on and someone gets hurt? Huh. Now, if you're telling me that the All-Star game was what it was and someone got hurt, not that it's easier to swallow, but I can't remember an example of where that has happened. So Brian Windhorst told this story on the um, NBA ESPN Daily podcast where uh, years ago when Kobe and Dwayne Wade were in an All-Star game one time, Kobe went to drive down the lane and Wade gave him a hard foul in the fourth quarter of the All-Star game and basically gave Kobe a bloody nose. And Wade was so nervous to see Kobe the next time he saw him. Like, he immediately went to apologize to him, according to Windhorst. And Kobe said, don't apologize. I bleep and love it. <laughs> you know, and it's like, and, and Windhorst said, that was, he said that was the last time he could remember someone playing hard enough in an all-star game to, like, actually even maybe their Well, I remember injured. when, like, Iverson was playing those teams. Like, they would – because a lot of times the Eastern Conference was always kind of viewed as, like, the underdogs. Those right. Western Conference teams were always – and then, like, the Iverson teams, like, they took it personal. And, like, yeah, they would have their fun. They would be up and down. And in they the would fourth showcase quarter, their they locked down. Yes. And in, in the fourth quarter of that game, really the, the last four to six minutes of the game, that is when they would say, all right, we had our fun. We put on our show. But we also want to show that we can play at a very high level and that did not happen at all last night sports bass live 97.3 espn the 97.3 espn free mobile app um i don't know what happens to that game quite frankly i don't care if people enjoyed it great for you if you didn't enjoy it you're not going to watch it i'm not telling people what to do just giving you my opinion and i see a lot of text messages coming in also, coming up this hour, I did something yesterday. It was way easier than I thought. That's coming up in about 20 minutes. Who's hitting leadoff for the Phillies? We might have some clarity there. But when we come back, Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City on everything that happened this weekend in sports. It's with Mike Gill. Do I have everybody's attention now? On 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. You know that I like to have sort of a consistent lineup, and he's a guy that if you gave 
Schwarber a day off. He got laid off. He gave Stott a day off. He just he could go right into Stott's line, and everybody stays the same. So um, he's pretty flexible that way. Rob Thompson today, did he play his hand a little bit there? He was asked about where Merrifield could hit in the lineup. He said, well, if we give Schwarber the day off, he can hit leadoff. He can go to Stott's spot. He then was followed up and said, oh, so you decided that Schwarber's going to hit leadoff. He said, well, I don't want to say that. But does he already know what this lineup's going to look like? We got that. We got Mike McGarry's thoughts on the All-Star game. Whit Merrifield has signed. All that and more right now with Press of Atlantic City columnist Mike McGarry. He joins us now on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. Michael, how was the weekend? Uh, the weekend is always great, you know. What, what's not good about a Saturday and Sunday? And now you you put a third day on it a Monday, and, and everything's great. Well, I can tell you what wasn't good. The All-Star game last night. Am I a get-off-my-lawn guy? Am I a get-off-my-lawn no. guy, or was that a disgrace? I, I thought it was a complete embarrassment to the players and everybody involved. Just the lack of – look, I don't exactly – uh, expect the players to go out there and defend like the 1990s Knicks, but that's ridiculous. I mean, at least give somewhat of an effort. You know, you used to see some all-star games where there'd at least be some like one-on-one matchups during the game where guys would go against each other and guys would try to defend the absolute lack of defense, 200 points. I mean, the game is, the, the game is unwatchable. And, and again, I don't expect them to be the 19, you know, uh, the bad boy Pistons from the '80s out there defensively, but we've got to do, we've got to at least stay in front of our man a little bit. I, and the the play that summed it up for me the whole night, uh, and I didn't watch much of it, but I caught this on the highlights is when uh, Luka Doncic tried to throw the ball off the backboard and dunk, and, and he ended up hitting the front rim and missing the dunk. That to me summed up the whole the whole game. I mean, to me, the game is not. It's not even close to worth watching. Uh, yeah, 168 three-point attempts last night. I, I can, you know, look at it and say the three-point shot was supposed to be something uh, that helped the game. And I, and I liken it to, you know, hey, you can eat like pizza and a cheesesteak in moderation. Well, if you eat more than moderation, you're going to gain weight. Well, I feel like the moderation of the three started in the, you know, 80s and the 90s. And then when they started to stop the moderation, uh, this game has got obese. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the way the game is today. The analytics will tell you the three-point is a better shot than the mid-range jumper. Three is obviously worth more than two. It's basic math. But last night during the All-Star break, it was All-Star game. It was just ridiculous. I mean, Dame Lillard pulling up repeatedly from half court. Now, granted, he made a couple of them, but I mean, it's it's guys playing in an, it's guys playing in an empty gym. I mean, it might as you might as well put the five guys from the West out there against air and then put the five guys from the East out there against air and see who makes the most shots. It was a, it was a game of horse. It should have been. It was not, it was not an all-star game. It was a layup line. It was a three point competition and the layup line wrapped into an all-star game. And if you are the very, very unwatchable. Yeah. If you were the very, very, very best at your game and that was the show you put on last night, if you watched it back, you would say as a collective group of all-stars. And I think like Luka Doncic and and Nicole, Jokic were two guys that said, I don't want to be a part of this, Sham. And, and we're embarrassed to be a part of this. And I felt bad for guys like Maxi, who probably is like, hey, I'm an all-star. I want to take this game seriously. And he got wrapped into that. Yeah, I, I mean, at, at some point, could we have seen, you know, uh, Maxi against a guard from the West just guarding? You want to isolate guys and go one-on-one and do stuff like that? That's great, you know. 
But, uh, you know, let's see some defense. Let's see in the last eight minutes of the game when the game is maybe close. Let's see some professional pride out there. That last night was just a complete waste of time. And I think the NBA has got a real issue going forward. You know, you've already seen, you know, pro football. Uh, you know, they've done away with the Pro Bowl. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what hockey does with their all-star game. But, boy, you, you can't put a, another game out there like, they, the NBA did last night. All right, Mike McGarry for the Press of Atlantic City. Uh, you talk about it was a great weekend. Uh, the Phillies signed Whit Merrifield on Friday after you and I spoke. That was uh, later on in the day. So uh, Rob Thompson spoke today a little bit about the signing. Uh, he said he could fit anywhere. It just depends on who you're going to take out of the lineup on any given day. He's hit at the top of the lineup, the bottom of the lineup. What kind of fit is Merrifield for you? Well, he's a he's a perfect fit, and I think it says something about where the Phillies are going, at least in spring training, right? Rob Thompson is absolutely correct. Bryson Stott needs a day off, or Bryson Stott twists an ankle for two weeks. Who can go play second base? Whit Merrifield. Uh, Brandon Marsh needs a day off against a tough lefty. Who can go play left field? Uh, you know, um, uh, Whit Merrifield can. Uh, you know, Trey Turner gets hurt. You can put Stott at shortstop, Merrifield at second base. So he's the perfect utility fit. I think what it indicates to me is the Phillies are going to break camp with Johan Rojas as, uh, as the starting center fielder and with Merrifield as his, uh, uh, jack of all trades sort of insurance policy for the outfield and the infield. Now, I don't know if you got a chance to hear all of Rob Thompson today, but he might have played his hand and then tried to backtrack a little bit. He said, well, if, uh, Schwarber needs a day off, Merrifield can hit lead off, uh, and then, there was a follow-up question that says, oh, have you decided on where Schorber's going to hit? He said, well, not yet. You know, we haven't even had a full workout yet. But do you anticipate opening day that Kyle Schwarber will be back in the leadoff spot? Because he was actually on the Starkville podcast and was asked about it, and he said he was open to hitting wherever they asked him. Yeah, uh, I expect opening day, Citizens Bank Park, they announced the starting lineup. When they come to the starting lineup after they announce the bench players and the clubhouse personnel and, and the relievers and stuff, the first guy out of the dugout of the starters will be Kyle Schwaber. He's going to hit leadoff. It's worked for the Phillies in the past. I think they were, what, 63-44 and 44 with him in the leadoff spot last year. They went to the World Series with him in the leadoff spot. They went to the seventh game of the NLCS with him in the leadoff spot. He is going to bat leadoff. Um, this season, and I know he's on a podcast and he says, I'll hit anywhere the team wants me to do. Uh, yeah, of course he's going to say that. I think deep down Kyle Schwaber wants to hit leadoff. He's most comfortable hitting leadoff. And to be the advantage uh, is, you know, if you, you're the opposing pitcher is in the deep end of the pool right away. If you make a mistake to a light hitting leadoff hitter, it's a double up the gap. If you make a mistake to Kyle Schwaber, it, it's a two run home. Or two, it's a solo home run in, in the upper deck. Uh, by the way, so Schwarber hit 197 last year, but he had a higher OPS than Bo Bichette, who led with a 306 batting average and led the league in hits. So is high, having a higher OPS more meaningful than hitting 306? Yeah, and plus I think what Rob Thompson really likes, too, is that factor. The pitcher has got to be sharp from 
the get-go or he's down one nothing uh, immediately. And I think, you know, how many games have we seen where Schwaber has hit that home run leading off the bottom of the first or the top of the first, just setting the tone for the game? If the opposing pitcher has got to be on his game, he can't make a mistake to Schwaber because if he makes a mistake and Schwaber is in one of those streaks, it, it's a home run. So you're in the deep end of the pool right away. So I would expect Schwaber to hit leadoff uh, you know, for the majority of the season because it's worked in the past. The bottom line is they win when Kyle Schwaber bats leadoff. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, the uh, article that uh, Jason Stark wrote and uh, the, with the podcast, uh, Starkville with uh, Doug Glanville, he compared Schwaber's leading off to Doug Glanville's historic 1999 season where Glanville in the leadoff spot had 204 hits. He had 50 singles to lead off the game, had an 887 OPS. Schwarber beat him by 170 points, even though Glanville had 204 hits and 50 singles to lead off the game. And Glanville kind of said, your approach as the leadoff hitter is working counts, walking, where I felt I had to get a single every single time I came up. Yeah, I, and I think Kyle Schwaber's approach uh, leading off the game is to put the Phillies up one nothing. He's looking for a pitch you know, a, a mistake he can drive. How many times do we see it take a while for a starting pitcher to kind of get into the game, find his control? And it, like I said, if you make a mistake to Kyle Schwaber, the Phillies are up one nothing. How many times have we been at Citizens Bank Park? That home run in the bottom of the first inning, the place is going crazy. The Phillies got momentum. The opposing pitcher is rattled. All that opposed to a single. Okay, the leadoff hitter gets a single. Boy, you can work yourself out of that. You can't work yourself out of a ball that crashes off the scoreboard <laughs> in right field. Uh, so, Whit Merrifield, is that a big enough addition to change the outlook of where we thought this team may have been, you know, a lot of running it back. Castiano said, hey, you know, I don't know a team that didn't like each other that they've ever won a World Series. So we all know each other. We all like each other. This running it back theme is Whit Merrifield enough to say, you know what? I changed my expectations of this team. Well, I, I don't change my expectations because my expectations are, are pretty high. I think it's clearly... For this group, it, it's World Series or bust. And if you see what Castellano said down there in Florida, he talked about the existing guys. Even though you're running it back, the existing guys getting better. Bryce Harper at first base for a full season. Bryce Harper healthy at the plate for a full season. I think we all agree that Aaron Nola can have a better season than he had last year. Trey Turner, forget about what Turner did at the bat. He was pretty good in August and September, pretty bad in the months before that. But I thought defensively last year, Trey Turner really struggled. I think he can be better defensively. Uh, Kyle Schwaber has talked about hitting the ball the opposite way more. Castellanos talked about cutting down on his strikeout. So, I, you know, I don't really have a problem with them running it back, Mike, I, cause, because, you know, point me to the position where they should have, you know, changed out or, or gotten better. I do think a couple of things. I think this team now has put itself in a position where at the all-star break, they, if they need a power hitting outfielder, if they need a starting pitcher, if they need a big-time closer, they can go get one at the all-star break. And I think this might be like the last year you run it back with this team. If this team doesn't win it this year or, let's say, gets eliminated in the wild card round or the division round, then I think you look at changes going into 2025. So this might be the last, you know, the last ride 
for this group of players. All right, Mike, I'll leave you with this. Uh, what is your thoughts on this whole Harper extension talk? He says he wants to play until he's 45 years old. Uh, he's three years into that deal that he signed, but he's already talking about an extension. But he says, hey, I want to play till I'm 45. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, you know, the Phillies got to work their way carefully through this, right? Me, Mike McGarry, I think it's crazy. The guy's got eight years left on his contract. Granted that he wants to play till he's 45. Okay, that's great. <laughs> he doesn't have the greatest injury history in the world. The last two years he's been banged up and missed time, but he got eight years left on that contract. So let's talk extension, you know, with three years left on that contract, two years left on that contract. At the same point, if you're the Phillies, this guy is, you know, the unquestioned, you know, marquee guy of your team. You know, you want to keep him happy, so you can probably figure out a way to give him an extension. But, you know, uh, to, to me, for, the, for him to ask for an extension with eight years left on the current deal uh, and his injury history the past couple of years, I don't know if that makes the best business sense for the Philadelphia Phillies. All right, Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. We'll wrap up with this. Uh, you had the Cape Atlantic League basketball weekend. Who stood on top on the girls' and boys' side? Yeah, great weekend of basketball. Middle Township boys, you know, always one of the area's top teams. And, and this seems crazy to say, but they won their first Cape Atlantic League title in 26 years since 1998. They beat Mainland before a packed Egg Harbor Township gym. And then the Mainland girls won their third straight title with a big win over Wildwood Catholic. So Middle Township boys and Mainland girls reign supreme. And now we've got the state basketball tournament beginning Wednesday of this week. Middle Township, the top seed in South Jersey, Group 2. Mainland, the top seed in South Jersey. Mainland girls, the top seed in South Jersey, Group 3. So those teams uh, still have a lot to play for, as do a lot of the local teams. And we'll have a you know a preview of the state tournament online today at pressofac.com and in the paper tomorrow as, as really the best two to three weeks of the high school sports calendar continues this week. Good stuff, Mike. And, of course, uh, we've got plenty more on Philly spring training coming up. And the Sixers will start the second half of the season against the Knicks on Thursday. And uh, we'll have coverage here on the Sports Pass. Thank you, Mike. All right, Mike, we'll see you down the road. All right, Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. Good conversation with him, as always, here. Our weekend look back there, the All-Star game. The Phillies are going. Rob Thompson spoke. You'll hear more from what Rob Thompson had to say. Plus, you'll hear from Kyle Schwarber, Whit Merrifield, and the Sports Bash thoughts. I'm going to give you what I would do with the lineup for opening day, coming up at 3 o'clock. On the other side, so yesterday was the first Sunday without football. And I did something yesterday, and it was way easier than I thought. I don't know if I'm giving kudos or not. You guys can decide for yourself. That's next. This is the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. The Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN and the free mobile app. 250, uh, Mike Gill. What's up, everybody? Sports Bash 97.3 ESPN. Flyers fans, it's time to level up your game day ritual. The ultimate power duo, the Flyers and Union Forge Vodka. Cheer on the Flyers with the best tasting vodka produced right here in Philly. Grab a Union Forge bottle today. Flyers lost 6-3. I watched pretty much that whole game. Pretty entertained with that game. Great crowd, great energy at the um, 
Stadium Series game on Saturday night. I didn't watch any of the game yesterday. I watched uh, Flyers game Saturday night pretty much from start to finish. 2 nothing. They made it 2-1, tip it a couple of goals, just couldn't get that... Uh, you know, they couldn't get that momentum. It looked like they had the momentum. They couldn't get one past the goalie there. And then the Devils kind of uh, tacked on a couple and it pulled away. Flyers tried to get back in the game. But it was a fun, entertaining event. You see, they had an event and they embraced it. The Flyers came out dressed like Rocky. The Devils came out dressed like the Sopranos. It was a high-energy party in that building. It was a great celebration of the sport for hockey on Saturday and Sunday. Not such a great celebration of the sport for the NBA this weekend. Now, I take that back. I didn't watch Friday night, but I did see Saturday a little bit of, like, uh, some of the highlights there, like the dunk contest. I didn't watch much of the dunk contest. I saw some of the highlights, but, like, the Steph Curry, the three-point thing, that was well-received. The three-point competition was well-received. The dunk competition has kind of jumped the shark. Are you suggesting that maybe the NBA can learn something from the NHL here? For the first time ever. Uh, all right, so I did something yesterday, and it was way easier than I thought. Are really? you intrigued? CC? CC, very intrigued. So for a while, I have been paying for both Comcast and YouTube TV. Mm-hmm. I also have been paying for Comcast Wi-Fi and Verizon Wi-Fi. So I'm an idiot. I've been just basically taking money and lighting it on fire. And we have had the conversation that, you know, one's got to go. We can't have Verizon Wi-Fi, Comcast Xfinity Wi-Fi, Comcast Cable, and YouTube TV. YouTube TV has now become too expensive to be able to say, ah, it was only $39.99, yada, yada, yada. So we made the decision, you know, we got rid of Comcast. I have to say, there was a lot of anxiety of walking in that building yesterday. And they didn't ask one question. I had all the equipment. I said, here you go. You guys canceling service? Yes, we are. Okay, here you go. It was way easier than I thought. And I applaud them for being, not trying to talk me out of it, not asking questions. They literally said, Thank you. Here you go. Here's your receipt. You'll see the prorated bill. Now, I'm not suggesting that I was unhappy with my service or anything. I just decided, you know, I can't keep paying for all of it. But I will say, a lot of times you try to say, hey, I can't, I, I don't want to have my service. Well, why not? What can we do? Yada, yada, yada. These people were very nice yesterday, and it was way easier than I thought. Now, the pain in the ass of it was when I got home, <laughs> Everything in our house was set up to the Comcast Wi-Fi, and we had to basically reset everything in our house to connect it to the Verizon Wi-Fi. Now, we've had this Verizon Wi-Fi for probably over a year, but very few things in our house have been, like, attached to it. So what you're saying is that the problem wasn't Xfinity. The problem was after you got rid of Xfinity. Well, listen, I don't think anybody would argue, Xfinity included, that it's a bit ridiculous the price that they're charging. Oh no, it's more than ridiculous. It's 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 exorbitant. It's the reason why this week I'm going through the same process that you just right went now. YouTube TV is also 
now charging too much. Like, hey, they were thirty nine ninety nine. It was a cute little fun product. They had all the channels that you wanted. Well, then they have kind of just decided, you know what? We're going to go out and just add channels that nobody wants and then charge you more money because they're up to seventy nine ninety nine a month. But they're saying, well, we've added like 40 more channels. Yeah, I don't watch any of them. But the enticement of Xfinity used to be if you bundled this and bundled that, you would save money. Now well, it's not even worth Yeah, well, it I contend that all of these companies are all biting their nose to spite their face. They had cable, and then Netflix and Amazon came along with the streaming services. So what did the cable companies do? They tried to create their own streaming services. They got in too late, and now they don't know what to do. Do and they want to be a cable company? Do they want to be a streaming company? You can't be both. You just got to own that your cable, they're yep. streaming, and try to – you can't join them. And now it's turned into a mess. But kudos to Comcast Xfinity for not giving me a hard time when I returned my stuff yesterday. Two points for you. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Now live, here's Mike Gill. Hey, Kyle, what do you think the chances are that she'll lead off this year? I don't know. You know, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> we'll see. You know, I haven't, no one's even, you know, talked or anything like that. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But, you know, I've been in the leadoff spot for quite a bit now. But if they want me to not lead off, I'm not going to lead off. And I'm going to embrace that role that I'm in. Kyle Schwarber on the Starkville podcast with Jason Stark and Doug Glanville. I'm Mike Gill. This is the Sports Bash. What are the chances he leads off? He says, I don't know. Did Rob Thompson, though, play his hand today? Does he really know? This is what Rob Thompson said earlier today when he was asked about, hey, Whit Merrifield, where might he hit in the lineup? Here's Rob Thompson today. You know that I like to have sort of a consistent lineup, and he's a guy that if you gave Schwarber a day off, he could lead off. If you gave Stott a day off, he just he could go right into Stott's line, and everybody stays the same. So um, he's pretty flexible that way. So. Yeah, if I gave Schwarber the day off, Merrifield could lead off. It sounds like it's pretty clear that Rob Thompson has in his mind what he wants to do in the lineup. He says, if you know anything about me, I like my lineup to be pretty consistent. And then there was a question asked, wait, what are you doing with Schwarber? And he kind of uh, papooed it a little bit. Like, ah, we're only here the first day. Ah, what are you talking about? What do you mean what am I talking about? See, I don't like the way the follow-up was asked. I think the question could have been asked, and we're going to have Scott Lauber on at 5 o'clock tonight, but I want to see if Scott caught what Thompson said but he said the question was answered the way you just heard it. I think the follow-up would have said, wait a second, you just said Merrifield could hit leadoff for Schwarber if he needs a day off. Now you're saying you don't know if Schwarber's there. So, look, I think it's pretty obvious the lineup is going to be what it was last year with Schwarber leading off to start the season. But if the Phillies, to me, this is what I look at. They're running it back. They have come up short twice, but they feel like they're right there. Okay? I'm going to come back with the same team. To me, if I'm coming back with the same team, I have to mix it up a little bit. Fine, I have the same players, but maybe I just need to rearrange the the, the, the furniture on the Titanic, as they say. Maybe if I do change 
the furniture around a little bit, that this time the seating arrangement will be better. And that is why I think the Phillies need to think about, and look, the numbers all suggest that Schwarber is fine in the leadoff hole. And I am not like this anti-Schwarber leadoff guy. But I just wonder, look, they're on pace in Schwarber hitting leadoff. Remember, he didn't start the season hitting leadoff last year. It was right around June 1st or something that he went to the leadoff hole. From that time on, and in Schwarber's history with the Phillies, they are about a 99-win pace team when Schwarber hits leadoff. The numbers all suggest that this shouldn't even be a question. So I'm not questioning Schwarber as a leadoff guy in my mind. I'm just wondering if the team needs a little shakeup to a team that didn't shake itself up. What do I mean? All right, so Trey Turner is here. Trey Turner has hit leadoff probably more than any other spot he has ever hit in his career, all right? Now, he didn't do it a whole heck of a lot last year, and he got off to a really slow start, and it just, like, was a weird Trey Turner season. But if you go back and look at Trey Turner and his career, right, all right, what has Trey Turner done? Where has he hit in the lineup? Well, he has led off 487 times. That's more than any other spot in the lineup by over a hundred times, right? He has hit 487 times in the leadoff hole. He has hit number two, 351 games. So I have Trey Turner on my team. I have a legitimate answer to hit leadoff. That's not to say that Schwarber can't hit leadoff, but Trey Turner's number as a leadoff hitter, 302. 350 on base percentage, 69 homers, 224 ribbies. He's stolen 156 bases. Hello? That guy sounds like a pretty darn good leadoff man to me. So my lineup is going to have Trey Turner hitting leadoff. Not because I think Schwarber can't do it, just because I'm looking for a little shakeup to a team that didn't shake itself up. So I'm going to go Turner 1. So then what? This is where it gets a little interesting. I'm going to go Bryce Harper, too. And it's not a popular opinion, but a lot of teams start to hit their best hitter in that number two hole. For the Phillies, I feel like they need to do it just because of the left-handedness. Is that a word? Of this lineup. They are very left-handed. So I am trying to keep the balance of this lineup together. I'm trying to keep a right left, right approach so that I don't have two lefties hitting back-to-back. So Bryce Harper, for me, even though he's hit third 917 games, I'm going to hit him second where he's hit 213 games, and I'm going to try him there to start things off. So Turner one, Harper two. So who's hitting number three? Well, this is where it gets pretty interesting. I'm going to go to start the season off with Alec Bohm. This is a big year for Bohm. He just won his arbitration case, and I know he struggled in the playoffs, and people said, oh, you got to move Bohm. Alec Bohm had a very good year hitting with runners in scoring position last year. He was excellent. When runners were on base, the Phillies did not have a better hitter on the team. 
He had 97 RBI, but he excelled in hitting with runners in scoring position. So if I'm the Phillies, I say I have a guy who has proven to hit with runners in scoring position. Why not use that guy? Give him first crack at hitting in the number three hole. This is a guy, he's 27 years old now. He should be right in the prime of his career. Hopefully he goes from 274 to maybe about 285. Hopefully he goes from 20 to maybe 25 homers. And 97 RBI becomes 115 RBI. And then all of a sudden, you've got a guy that should be hitting in the number three hole. So Alec Bohm is going to get my first crack at hitting number three in the lineup. It's not something that he has done a whole heck of a lot, but when he did it for a short amount of time two years ago when Bryce Harper was hurt, right? You remember when Harper was out, Bryce uh, Harper missed all that time. They hit Boom in the three-hole. And in that time when he hit in the three-hole, he really did a good job there. In 40 games, he hit 295 with four home runs and 24 RBI hitting in that number three spot. Those 40 games were the best stretch that he really had. So I like him in the three-hole behind Bryce Harper. That brings us to Schwarber. What am I doing with Schwarber? I'm hitting him in the four-hole behind Alec Bohm. You know, for years we have said, what about all these home runs that he hits with nobody on base and he's got all this power? Well, I'm going to hit him in the number four hole. And it keeps me at right, left, right, and now Schwarber left-handed. And I'm going to give him a shot hitting in the four hole with those 47 home runs and say, hey, you're going to have guys on base 104 ribbies last year, you can get 150 ribbies on this team with Trey Turner and Harper and Boehm hitting in front of you. Now, some would say hit 197, there's a lot of strikeouts, he'll leave a lot of guys on base. The on-base percentage, 343. The OPS, 817. I mean, this guy's numbers across the board are unbelievable, except for his batting average. If we could just get past the batting average and say, this guy's on base... 34% of the time, it's really, really good. Now, in the four-hole for his career, this is not a spot, believe it or not, that Schwarber has hit a whole heck of a lot in. 81 games he has hit fourth. But when he has batted fourth in those 81 games, he has been really productive. 271 batting average, 371 on-base percentage, which is one of his best on-base percentages, period. 371 in the four hole, 20 homers in 81 games and 45 RBI. He has been very productive as a four hole hitter, not so productive as a five hole hitter where he's hit 138 games, but he only hits 199 with a 310 on base. I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers, but so far this lineup to me makes a lot of sense. Turner, Harper, Bohm, Schwarber. So Schwarber in the four hole. Now, one of the things he talked about on the Starkville podcast was his approach as a leadoff man. And he could still use this same approach hitting in this spot. And I'll explain why in a minute. The thing I want him to feel is that they feel like they can't establish right out the gate. If they want to try to get ahead with out really locating, you know, I'm going to try to put a really good swing on it, right? That, you know, it might go over the fence. It might be 
a double. It might be a, a hard hit out. It might be a six singles throughout the course of the year. All right. So Schwarber talks about his approach. You know, hey, they can't get comfortable to start the game. They got to bear right in because if they aren't ready, I can hit one and start this game off. Well, if you go one, two, three in the first inning, guess who's leading off inning number two? Kyle Schwarber. So he gets a chance to lead off the second inning of the game if things don't go well. And if they do go well, then guess what? Schwarber's got guys on base. It's almost a win-win. Hey, we go one, two, three, disappointing. Guess what? Schwarber leads off the second inning. Or Turner hits a double. Harper, you know, laces him over to third. Now Bohm's up. He gets an RBI. Harper's over to third. We have first and third, and here comes Schwarber. Schwarber has a chance to have a really big year if he's hitting in the four hole. Not that he can't have a big year in the one hole, but 47 homers with 100 plus ribbies can be 47 homers with 150 ribbies with the guy sitting in front of him. So I like Schwarber there. He also talked further on his approach as the leadoff hitter. Not letting them feel like they're selling in right to pitch one. You know, I want them to feel like it's an uncomfortable feeling from when they're throwing that first pitch. If you can do that, and you work that walk in the, the first bat or say, you know what, you get ball one right off the gate and it's, you know, way off or something like that. And, you know, they're, they're already thinking about, you know, it feels like they're trying to aim for a quadrant of the zone and they're trying to really be perfect with it. Yeah. And these are all things that can be established if there's runners on base in that first inning. Hey, if Turner and Harper and Bohm or two of the three of those guys do something, the same pressure is on that pitcher in the first inning. Now I got to face Schwarber. I got to be perfect here. And if he's not, if Schwarber does his job as taking pitches, working counts, now you got JT Real Muto hitting number five, right handed bat. Bryson Stott hitting number six, left handed bat. Nick Castellanos hitting number seven, right handed bat. And then your eighth spot, it's Marsh on the days when he's playing left-handed bat, Merrifield on the days he's playing, and then Rojas hits ninth. So really, you have an opportunity to go Turner right, Harper left, Bohm right, Schwarber left, Realmuto right, Stott left, Castellanos right, Marsh left, and then Rojas. And if you have a left-handed pitcher going, you got Merrifield hitting in that spot with Rojas. Now, one of the things that Rob Thompson said today, that guys are going to need days off, and that's where Merrifield kind of comes in. Rojas will need some days off, too. And so you can slide Marsh to center and put put it in left field. So, you know, we're just going to have to move people around a little bit, and, and it's a good it's a good problem to have, really. You know, it's just more talent, and the more talent you have, the better you are. Yeah, so he mentioned before in the flight that we played, the flexibility. Well, Rojas is going to need days off. Well, you might be able to go Castellanos, Marsh, Merrifield hitting in the nine hole. You know, you might have a day where Rojas isn't playing, and you have a right-handed pitcher, Turner, Harper, Bohm, Schorber, Romuto, Stott, Castellanos, Marsh, Merrifield. You're going right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, all the way through the lineup there, and your nine-hole hitter was in the All-Star game last year and twice led the league in hits. I mean, you can't really argue with a situation where you have roster, I mean, lineup flexibility, right, left, all the way through, and just absolutely no outs in there. Now, you can also say as... Rob Thompson hinted at. Now, he said if Schwarber was out of the lineup 
and he needed a day off, Maryfield could hit leadoff. But you could have the same situation. Let's say Stott needs a day off. Well, Maryfield could hit in the six hole, right? You could pop him right into the six spot and keep everything else because Merrifield has hit up and down the lineup. And that is why he is a really good piece for this team. One thing that Rob Thompson said, which was interesting, was, you know, we can get guys days off. The problem is these guys want to play every day. Here's where Rob Thompson comes into play. He has to demand that these guys are getting older and you can't play every day anymore. We have to cut back on your days, Nick Castellanos. And we have to cut back on your days, Bryce Harper and JT Realmuto. Now, Merrifield doesn't catch, but he does play first base. And that was one of the conversations today. You know, it was joked that Merrifield doesn't even own a first baseman. And Rob Thompson says, well, we'll buy him one. He said the only thing Merrifield asked was, just give me a heads up. Like, if I'm going to play first base this week, give me a couple days in advance. If I'm going to play third base this week, give me a couple days notice so that I can get prepared to make that throw across the diamond. But Merrifield's going to be a guy that one day hits first, one day hits sixth, one day hits ninth. That's the value of bringing Merrifield onto this roster is he's not really tied to any one spot in the order. In fact, you go and look at where has Whit Merrifield hit? Now, most of his at-bats have come in the leadoff spot. 731 games he has batted leadoff, and he's been pretty good. He has batted second 101 games. So his first two spots in the lineup is essentially where this guy has hit. But that doesn't mean he has hit fifth, he has hit sixth, he has hit seventh, he has hit eighth, he has hit ninth. And in all those spots... Ninth, he's hit 302. Eighth, he's hit 352. Seventh, he's hit 278. Sixth, he's hit 317. It's not like he goes somewhere else in the bottom of the order and just absolutely, you know, tanks. He is a guy that has hit all up and down the lineup and knows what his role is. So adding him to the team has really given the lineup flexibility and depth and the opportunity, I think, to give guys off. Now, here's the thing. Trey Turner needs a day off. Well, you play Sosa because he's got to be the shortstop. They don't really have an I guess Stott can play. That'll be interesting. If Turner needs a day off, do they play Stott at shortstop at all and let Merrifield play second base? Because Stott obviously played short, but he has now moved to second. But do they want him to play short? You do have Edmundo Sosa, who's a very good shortstop as well. But maybe it's a way to keep the offense and kind of get Stott and Merrifield together. So that's an option. If Harper needs a day off, you can do a couple things. Bohm can go play first base. Merrifield can play third. Or Sosa can play third. Or Merrifield can play first base. So you got that flexibility. If Bohm needs a day off, Merrifield can play third. Sosa can play third. Schwarber has the DH. If he needs the day off, Merrifield can go into... Uh, the field and somebody that's in the field can go to the DH for the day and take the day off. If Bryson Stott needs a day off, obviously Merrifield has played more games at second base than he's played at any other position. Right field. If Castellanos needs a day, Merrifield has played right field. And obviously if Rojas is struggling or needs a day off, Merrifield has also played center field. In fact, last year with Toronto, he played 84 games at second base and 84 games in the outfield. This is really the perfect pickup for this team. One interesting note is 
the Phillies didn't do anything until Friday when they picked up Merrifield. And Kyle Schwarber was asked about that. And he said, hey, Dave Dombrowski has been a guy who's really been active. But this year, all he did was pick up Aaron Nola. But Schwarber talked about why Nola was so important for this team to bring back. You know, the, the best way that I can put Nola is is that 200-inning arms just aren't walking around the streets anymore where, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a lot of different beliefs in the game of baseball. But, you know, when you're able to go out there and take care of your body like he does, he's able to post every single start and you feel like he's going, you know, six, seven innings almost every time. And he's racking up the inning. It's innings that keeps your bullpen fresh. So Schwarber said, look, it's invaluable what Knowles does to this team. If he's not here, that's 40 or 50 innings that we've got to ask our bullpen guys to pick up. And that means our bullpen is more worn down as the season goes on. But is that a big enough reason to focus on just Nola and running it back? Here's what Nick Castellanos said about the team running it back. I've been on a lot of teams, and i played baseball for 31 years old, so 28 years. And if you don't have good team chemistry, your chances of being successful is pretty close to zero. Zero. This team gets along. They like each other, but like Mike McGarry said last hour, this might be their last chance at running it back together, and they felt that Whit Merrifield fit into this clubhouse perfectly as a guy who can give everybody a day off, play multiple positions, and running it back with the same group of guys and the same pitchers as they had a year ago. We're going to find out if it's the perfect formula and I'm looking forward to it. Sports Bass Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Mike Gill with you. And, hey, I want to tell you about my friends over at Key Acura. Go see my, my, my guy Rocco at Key Acura of Atlantic City. Now, through the end of the month, 10 days, he can get you in a 2024 Acura Integra lease for just $369. Think about that. You've been thinking about, hey, man, I got to get a new car. I like that Acura. Can't think about payments right now. Three sixty nine a month, perfect, right there. Or a twenty twenty four MDX lease for four ninety eight a month. Beginning March second, their service department will be open on Saturdays again. So stop in and see Rocco at Key Acura of Atlantic City, Tilton Road and EHC, the small but friendly dealer. Online at keyacuraofatlanticcity.com. Thoughts on the Phillies? 609-403-0973. That was my lineup. Turner, Harper, Bohm, Schwarber, Realmuto, Stott, Castellanos, Merrifield, and Marsh. They can platoon there. And then Rojas in the nine hole. That's my lineup. What's yours? But when we come back, what can we expect from the Sixers post-All-Star break? You'll hear what Tyrese Maxey said last night. That's coming up next. This is the Sports Bash live on 97.3 ESPN. We have the purpose sitting in traffic. You come with me. The Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. You know, we made a, a big trade for Buddy. I think Buddy's been great. You know, he's come in and brought some energy, him and campaign as well. And I just feel like guys are ready to go out there and compete. You know, our last, like, three or four games, we've been really, really good. Played against some good teams, uh, won some games, and lost some, some tough competitive games that we could have won. So I feel like we're in a great place, a great place mentally and a great place soon to be physically once we get some guys back, and then we'll go out there and compete. 
Uh, it was Tyrese Maxey at the All-Star game last night. He was asked about the second half post-All-Star break for the Sixers. He said something at the end there. We'll be in a better place when we get guys back. Ah, but what guys is he talking about? Keith Pompey from the Philadelphia Inquirer, he was on game night this weekend on 97.3 ESPN and was asked, when are the Sixers hoping to get Joel and Bede back from injury? Just another four to six weeks because it was initially, you know, the hope was six to eight weeks. So they're hoping, you know, it was two weeks, so they're hoping to get him back. And, and they're hoping that, you know, that he can lead them to, a, you know, a nice playoff um, run. All right, four to six weeks is what Keith said there. So if we're talking about another four to six weeks, okay, friends, let's count them off. Today's President's Day, the 19th, one week. Next week, the last week of February, two weeks. Let's go to March. We're looking at the first week of March. That would be three weeks. The following week, four weeks. All right, we've been talking about it a lot. If Embiid can come back around March Madness, that would be five weeks. March 19th is the start of March Madness. It's also the first day of spring. Six weeks would be after the madness. You know, the first Thursday of March Madness is the 21st, and you can listen to that right here on 97.3 ESPN. That following week is when you're going to get the Sweet 16. That would be six weeks from now that possibly Joel Embiid could come back. And I would think that is a best-case scenario. If you could tell me the Sweet 16, which begins, all right, the first Sweet 16 game, when that begins, if you have to make a decision on watching the Sweet 16 or Joel Embiid returning to the lineup, that would be a positive. All right, you're talking about the Sweet 16 on Thursday, March 28th, Friday, March 29th, the Sixers play the Cavaliers. If I could say Joel Embiid's going to play Friday, March 29th against the Cleveland Cavaliers, great. That means you've got Joel back for essentially one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine games. Is nine games enough? to get Joel up and running, make you feel all warm and fuzzy about this team. Here's what Keith Pompey says that the Sixers can expect when he comes back. The injury that he had, the recovery time that he has, it typically takes four to six weeks just for the recovery. Now, they gave it six to eight. So what that does is it gives them ample time to go out there and get his body back in condition and get back in shape. So their hope is that by that time we're getting an extra two weeks, that that will enable him to, you know, to be closer to the player that he was before. That would be on the end of the timeline, as we mentioned, about six weeks to 29th. Give him about two weeks, nine games. Can nine games get him going, get his legs under him, get the, you know, cardio back? that he has lost from basically the last time we saw Joel was in January. We are now getting close. We're 10 days from March, believe it or not. We last saw Joel in January. We will not see Joel potentially until April. That's a long time for the big man to be taking time off. Although the big man did comment last night on Twitter or Saturday night 
that he thinks he could win the dunk contest, but his knee would not allow him. So he did throw a little humor into what the dunk contest was. I'm not sure Joel Embiid can beat his former G League. Is Mac McClung still with the uh, Delaware? I didn't think he was. I don't know. Who is he playing for now? I had to double check, but I thought it was like the Miami Heat or something like that. So McClung. He's still in the G League. Is the, yeah, I know he's not in the NBA. He's back-to-back slam dunk competition winner. He got a cup of coffee with the Sixers last year late in the year. But Joel's like, I could win this dunk contest, but my knee won't allow it. So you heard what Maxie said. We'll be in a better place when we get guys back. You heard what Pompey said, four to six weeks. And then uh, Pompey said, yeah, that gives him a couple of weeks to kind of get his legs underneath of him. Does all of this add up to the Sixers being able to make a deep playoff run? And I think most people out there, like this weekend, trying to take the temperature of Sixers fans, because quite frankly, look, Phillies don't start regular season games. Put it this way. When the Phillies start regular season baseball will be about six weeks from now, and that is hopefully when it be. Like, that Friday night of the Sweet 16, the Phillies opener is Saturday, uh, is Thursday, the day before. So we could get the Phillies opening the season on Thursday afternoon against the Braves and then Joel Embiid hopefully returning on Friday against the Cavs. That would be a perfect world, wouldn't it? The question is, can the Sixers stay afloat without Joel Embiid playing throughout the month of February? Then throughout the month of March, where would they be when that all comes to fruition? That's the big question, and I don't know that we have the answer to that question, is what we've seen from the Sixers as currently constructed, friends, are they good enough? And right now, I think we're kind of seeing, eh, they probably can hang around where they are, but can they be the five seed? Can they be the four seed? Can they be the three seed? Tell you where they are right now. And it doesn't feel like that's a possibility. They're the five seed. They're two games up on Indiana for the sixth spot. They are two games behind the Bucks for the third spot. But they are four games behind Cleveland for the two spot. So it almost feels that they can't catch Cleveland. They might be able to stay and play for the three seed. They're only a half game behind the Knicks for the four seed. Now... As we talked about a lot last week, when they tip it back off on Thursday, Knicks, all right, can I win that game and flip-flop me and the Knicks? All right, Cavs, okay, if I can beat the Cavs, that gets me one game closer to the two seed. Bucks, okay, if I can win that game, gets me one game closer to the three seed. Celtics, if I can win that game, not that I think I can get the number one seed, but maybe I get a game on Cleveland, Milwaukee, the Knicks. The problem is you're going to be the underdog in all four of those games. So you're hoping to just possibly split those games at best. And if you split those games, you're probably no better than you were when you started it in the five spot. So that's why this getting out of the gates is very, very challenging for this team that is just trying to like stay afloat until Joel comes back. Because look, now Joel's possibly, last week I thought when we had Paul Hudrick on and he said he was pretty confident that Joel would come back. We also asked our Sixers insider, Austin Krell. He also felt that Joel would come back. Okay, 
some positive vibes from some of the beat guys. I'll play along. The month of March, though, still has to be played without Joel, most likely. Okay, Charlotte, a non-playoff team. Okay, I could possibly get that one. Dallas, a mediocre team, but okay, eh, it's on the road, probably not. How about Brooklyn, who fired their coach today, Jacques Vaughn, got fired. And did you hear the reasoning why they kind of parted ways with him? Did you read this? I heard what they talked about on the radio about it. So apparently Bridges had problems with the offense. He wasn't happy with the offensive uh, philosophy because Jacques Vaughn, believe it or not, had an offense that was set up around Ben Simmons actually playing. Well, of course, Ben hasn't really played all that much. So this offense that they thought they were going to have behind Ben Simmons as this high-volume facilitator never materialized, and it just turned into what you've got from the Brooklyn Nets, which is them just bombing threes all over the place, and some nights are good and some nights are not so good. He ends up getting fired today. So Sixers at Brooklyn. Of course, they played in Philly against Brooklyn a couple weeks ago and got bombed because Brooklyn was bombs away, hitting threes all over the place. Memphis, not a playoff team, right? So, okay, there's another winnable game. New Orleans. uh, New Orleans is a playoff team, but about 500. Back-to-back on the road against the Knicks. They play the Knicks at the Garden Sunday and Tuesday, and then at the Bucks on the 14th. So three straight roadies against teams ahead of you. Charlotte, again, not a good team. Miami, a team that always gives you problems. Phoenix, L.A. Lakers, L.A. Clippers, and Sacramento on that West Coast road trip. All four of those teams, pretty good. L.A. Clippers back here at home, the Harden return. Can Joel say, I want to be back for that game with James Harden? The problem is you have those four games out west. You have one game at home and then two more games on the road, one game at home, and then three games on the road. Who put this schedule together for this team? Not conducive for a big man with a knee problem trying to find the right time to come back. So what I would look at is Wednesday, March 27th is about six weeks. You play the Clippers at home, and then – You have a day off, you travel to Cleveland, you play the Cavs, you go to Toronto, play the Raptors, come home, play Oklahoma City, and then you have a three-game road trip where you're at Miami, Memphis, San Antonio, and then you come home for the final three games. Now, it is not a challenging schedule after these four in terms of who you play. I mean, really, that four-game West Coast trip with Phoenix, L.A., L.A., and Sacramento is tough, but really... There's a lot of winnable games in here. It's just a weird setup with the road and home and this game at home for one, and then you're back on the road. So it's going to be challenging to find the little locker of games that you can get the Philadelphia, uh, the, the big guy back in Philadelphia, maybe, but then you got all these games on the road. So keep that in mind when you're trying to find a spot for Joel to come back. Do they want him traveling on the road, bebopping and skit scatting on a plane all over the place with this knee, or do they just want to kind of ease him back and just like, okay, we'll get him a couple home games. We don't want him playing, I would imagine, back to backs. We don't want him going on the like a long road trip out west. So I would think that West Coast trip is out. 
I think your target games are Wednesday the 27th against the Clippers, April 2nd against Oklahoma City. The problem after that is you only have three games at home after that, and they're the last three games of the year. Are three games enough? And one of the games on the road, Memphis and San Antonio, it's on a back-to-back. So you would imagine he doesn't play there. I would not imagine he plays in back-to-backs at all the rest of the season if he even plays at all. But that's where I think there's a lot of the puzzle pieces getting put together here for, for Joel Embiid. For you, when you think about Embiid and his health, you know, is there, do you think there's a way that he can play some of those road games? Like, you, like, do you think they can use a minute restriction and it actually work? Oh, listen, I think there are way better ways for load management and, and minute restrictions than these teams do. You don't have to give a guy the whole day off. Right. You know, a minute restriction of, or a load management could be like, listen, we're going to play at 25 minutes tonight. You know, hey, we don't need you to play 40 minutes, but the last five minutes of the game, give me the best you got. It's like asking the closer to come in and pitch the ninth. Can't I have my best guy available to me on a game when I hope that I can keep my team in it? And then, hey, you haven't played a whole heck of a lot tonight. Give me your best five minutes you got. I don't know why more teams don't say, we're going to load manage you, but in a way that you can still help us out and give the fans an opportunity to see that player. Yeah, I I just think that if you did it that way instead of the way you've been doing it, that it allows you to at least – Get Joel some minutes, get Joel some playing time, and not overexert him. And you basically got to tell him, be like, "Look, dude, it's not about tonight. Yeah. It's about getting away for the well." And I think the Eagle, uh, the Phillies, uh, <laughs> the Sixers need to understand that he needs to get games, but you can't just get him. And look, if he's cleared, if he's cleared to go, you got to get him out there and get him some minutes, even if it's twenty-five minutes a night, running up and down that court. You got to right. get his cardio back and and his legs back underneath of him. That is definitive. Sports Pass Live, 97.3 ESPN. This hour brought to you by Broadley's Plumbing, Heating, and AC. Broadley's your trusted source for heating and plumbing service and installation for generations. Call them at 609-390-3907. Visit them online at broadleys.net. Do we know who the Eagles' opponent will be in Brazil? We may have some insight on that. Coming up next, anybody in the listening audience planning on going to the game in Brazil? Shoot me a text at 609-403-0973. Plus, we're going to check in on our social media question today. Who is the most overrated and underrated Philly athlete right now? Of the four teams, Phillies, Flyers, Sixers, and Eagles, who's the most overrated player in the city? And who's the most underrated player in the city? Text in 609-403-0973. That's next. This is the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Black Kia. The Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN and the free mobile app. Uh, According to Peter King, he is feeling good that the Eagles will play the Browns. Week one, Friday night in Brazil. So it could be an Eagles-Cleveland matchup. 609-403-0973. 609-403-0973. Jeff at Ocean City says, I will be in Brazil. 
Anybody else planning on going to Brazil for the game? Anybody going to London for the Phillies and the Mets this summer? 609-403-0973. I'm actually going to the London game. I don't know about Brazil. That's uh that's a big investment there. But I will be in London for the Phillies and the Mets. Anybody else going to the game in London or Brazil? Jeff chimed in. He said, yeah, he's going to Brazil. I'm interested to see, like, are people excited about the fact that the Eagles are playing in another country? Does it bum you out because that was a home game? Yeah, Peter King in his um, football morning in America said he's feeling pretty good that it would be Eagles-Browns. So, you know, the Eagles, uh, it's a home game, so you have to find – one of the Eagles' home opponents for 2024. And you would imagine, okay, that it would not be one of the division games. I don't think it's going to be Washington, Dallas, or New York, you know, to play that game in uh, Brazil. So the games that would be home games for them are Atlanta, Carolina, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Green Bay, and Jacksonville. And I think Jacksonville... And maybe one of the other teams, I can't remember who it was, are not eligible to be in this game. Right, because Jacksonville and Carolina are both already playing international Carolina is the other one. Right, they're both already on international schedules, so they cannot be available for this game. Right, so Green Bay, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Atlanta, I would think those four are the most logical choices that would be played in this game. Yeah, and the theory that I had talked about before, Mike, was the idea that they're not going to put some schlep rock out there to South America. They put somebody with a name brand to go down there. That's so why see, I, I don't know if I agree with that. Why is that? Well, I mean, a lot of these uh, international games have been the schlep rocks. They're generally two teams that don't have a lot of high profile because they don't want those games to play at nine thirty in the morning. They don't. Now, this is going to be a Friday night, so this is a completely different situation. But I think a lot of these international games. Generally, it's Jacksonville, it's Cleveland, it's well, that's Atlanta. Been in the past, but to me, I feel like if you're going to a brand new country you've never been to before, a totally new scenario, you're going to want some some teams that have a little cachet. To them. Well, they got Philadelphia right there, so there's a big market team that has a huge following. So you feel like Philadelphia is big enough to offset whoever the other team I is think there's a reason why they announced Philadelphia singularly and mm-hmm. said, look, Philadelphia travels. I mean, these travel companies, your Philly sports trips and, and all the competitors, they've already got down payments. They've already got deposits being made on this. I think the NFL was well aware that Philadelphia, the fans are going to travel. So sure. we know that we're going to get that side filling the place up and then whoever they play against you know now cleveland's another very passionate fan base right. that will probably travel with their team so i could see the nfl saying let's get two big fan bases that will travel now pittsburgh would be another one i don't know i didn't read the peter king uh, article i just saw some tweets out there that basically said oh peter king feels pretty strongly that Philadelphia will play Cleveland in the um, in the game in Brazil. I don't know why he thinks that way. Maybe I can find it. But I definitely think that Philadelphia and their fan base is a huge draw 
for the NFL to say, we got a fan base that we know we can count on to travel here. Yeah, I was just curious if we would, my theory all along was, was to be Packers, Browns, or Steelers because those were three historic franchises, longstanding fan bases. And, you know, I know it's a, a bit of a joke among certain people, but the idea that in a lot of foreign countries, the people over there, they don't always see the most current content. So, like, a lot of the stuff that's on their televisions, it's older games at times. So, they, you know, when during the off season, so, you know, like, uh, you know, guys like, you know, Luca and Nikola Jokic, they've joked about how, like, they learned English by watching old American TV shows and, and games on their television. So, I wonder in South America, I can't speak to this personally, but I don't know, like, what is the football consumption like that? Well, I, I would think that that's why it doesn't matter who the teams are. They don't have a favorite team. They don't really have a, they're not there to cheer for any team. They're just there for the event. And that if the NFL could get a fan base to travel over there and help out with the attendance. I don't know how big the stadium is in Sao Paulo there. It's pretty big. But I think getting Philadelphia fan base, you're going to get a huge contingent of Eagle fans, I would imagine. And if it's Cleveland, you'd probably get a big contingent of Cleveland fans as well. Again, anybody planning on going to the game in Brazil, 609-403-0973, 609-403-0973. When we come back, it is football at four. Jeff Mosher's here. We'll take a look at some of the roster questions, team needs on the defensive side of the ball and more coming up next. 97.3 ESPN presents the Sports Bash with Mike Gill. It's time for Football at Four, powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Just hungry to bring back another Lombardi to Philly. Uh, it's, uh, the fans deserve it. Our team deserves it. Uh, culture begs for it. Now live from inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, this is Football at Four. And Football at Four is powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. It's brought to you by Bet365. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. Jeff Mosher from the Inside the Birds podcast is here, which you can listen to on any podcasting platform. Just search Inside the Birds for their YouTube channel as well as we take a look at a lot of the offseason team needs and things. As this uh, free agent season is going to be here, we bo- or we know it, less than a month away and a lot of questions that still need to be kind of talked about here as, by the way, today... Uh, Marcus Mariota's contract has expired, so there's another interesting team need. And we know, Jeff Mosher, one area the Eagles generally like to invest in is backup quarterback. And you wonder, with the state of the roster right now and the cap situation, can they spend money on that position? Or are they going to have to gonna go with an unknown or a younger guy in that backup quarterback role? Yeah, and don't forget off that, Mike, that Tanner McKee was a pleasant surprise last year as a day three pick, I believe a seventh rounder, who you wouldn't know by practice, but every time he got into a preseason game, looked way better uh, than anyone can could have anticipated. You will certainly like his development. He'll be entering year two. I talked about this with Adam on the podcast, wondering if the Eagles, you know they're going to bring a, a veteran. That's not a question. They'll bring in a veteran, but... You never know what you get with the veteran quarterback. And, you know, Marcus Mariota didn't exactly impress in OTAs and training camp. Unfortunately for the Eagles, he didn't have to play. We don't know what kind of level he would have played at had he had to play at some extended time. So you wonder if, as they're looking for 
a veteran, whether it's bringing back Mariota or somebody else, if they don't want to spend as much, Mariota cost them $5 million and pretty much all of it was, was close to guaranteed. He's going to make it. He was going to be on the team. But do they want to have less guaranteed money, less financial commitment to their next veteran, be it Mariota or somebody else, because of what they may get in year two of Tanner McKee, who will be working in year one of a new offense, but maybe an offense that's more quarterback-friendly. Um, so that's something that we have to keep in mind, uh, and they have to keep in mind as they go throughout this this free agent period and, and draft period. Um, but it's also going to be, Mike, a strong quarterback for drafts. You may see seven or eight quarterbacks go uh, in the top 70 picks. So... Now, the Eagles did this a couple of years ago. They surprised everybody. They took Jalen Hurts in the second round. They talked about the importance of a, a backup quarterback. I don't, I don't know if they'll want to do that again. I mean, certainly there are some, some elements of their franchise quarterback now has a high cap figure. He showed a little bit of regression, at least statistically, last year. Do they want to have sort of that same kind of contingency plan that they had years ago when they took Jalen Hurts as a backup? They could because this will be a strong quarterback draft. I don't know if they're going to go that route, but I do think that there obviously shows you there are a lot of different options out there. And I think the Tanner McKee question does kind of become a a curveball into it. How do they view him and can he compete by year two with their backup quarterback spot? I don't think they want that. But again, you just never know what kind of quality player you're getting usually when you sign a veteran backup quarterback. Right. Well, and we do know, though, the track record of the Eagles is generally they like to invest in that position. I mean, going back to Chase Daniels and Nick Foles, and they have had that position, whether they use it for a guy to get draft picks somewhere or just in case of injury, they generally like mm-hmm. to have a guy that they can trust in that position. Right. But the strange thing about the last few years post-COVID is the manipulation of the practice squad you saw that with Joe Flacco, right? Didn't he, his first few starts, I believe he was a practice squad quarterback until the Browns finally had a run out of elevation, signed him, and then watch him lead them to the postseason. Because you can do that now as opposed to three or four years ago, as you enter this coming season, do you want you want that veteran quarterback? You might see really good development in Tanner McKee. Maybe you draft a kid. I don't know if they're – but you're so financially committed to your backup quarterback that you can't make it all work. If you're able to bring in a veteran who you like, you don't have to give a ton of financial commitment to that to the point where you could possibly waive that quarterback at the deadline and then bring him back on your practice squad so that in a sense you can keep a younger kid like McKee, right? Or somebody else, or maybe McKee and someone else. It just gives you the optionality to do that. Um, which you didn't have five, six years ago. So I think that also throws another another layer to the onion in the quarterback mix. Yeah, and I guess one other area, too, on the offensive side of the ball is, you know, at wide receiver, you know, they gave Craig Waskin chance after chance. Do they go draft a guy and just hope again? Or do you think that's an area? Now, they did bring in Zacchaeus last year. That didn't really work out. But do they go with a more veteran player in that role, or do they try to roll the dice with another young guy? What's the better route? Yeah, I don't think you have to have a one-option plan for that. I think you it would be very much like the Eagles to sign someone to a one-year deal, whether it's bringing back Olamide Zacchaeus, maybe Quez, they do like Quez, somebody else, to say, hey, here's a guy who can be our number three receiver, number our slot receiver, but it's not such a prohibitive contract that if we draft a kid in the second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever round who – 
you know, is ahead of the curve and we like what he can do in the slot, bam, we can play him there too. Or whatever, it doesn't have to be the slot. You can always kind of move guys around a little bit. But you want to be able to have that optionality of bringing in a veteran who can handle it, but also doesn't have to play if you draft somebody who is ready to take that role. Uh, Jeff Bosher inside the Birds podcast football at four. You know, I was talking about team needs on Friday and realistically, I mean, you might not say there's replaceable guy like my lot is going to play. Dickerson's going to play. We don't know what's going to happen at center. Johnson's going to play, but you're getting to the point on the offensive side of the ball where, you know, it, you probably start need to get more depth at the offensive line position. You need to find another receiver regardless if it's the third receiver or if Brown, like he didn't play in the playoffs, or Smith were to miss an extended period of time, they really don't have another option at outside. You probably need to think about another tight end. you got to try to figure out what's going to happen in the interior. You need to find a running back. So while their offense seems like it's pretty set, they've got a lot of issues and needs on that offensive side of the ball, even though they're, the foundation is there. Yeah, depth, Mike. Depth is key. Uh, it's a big sticking point on what Adam and I spoke about in our two-part roster review series, the last two podcasts. We split it up into offense and defense. And what you notice about offense, which is different than their defense, offense, top-heavy. You just said it. you got two great starting wide receivers. You have really good starting offensive linemen. But when this team went to the Super Bowl and won it in 2017, they were deep enough to have some critical backups step in, hold the fort down, play really well. Steph Wisniewski, we know, started left guard. Uh, by week three, did a great job. You know, they rotated running backs that year. And they don't have that same kind of depth this year. Uh, after Devontae Smith and A.J. Brown, we just talked about it. We don't even know who the number three wide receiver is. But if either one of those guys were to get hurt or miss two or three weeks, you, you don't know what you're looking at there. And same thing on the offensive line. They used to go eight, nine deep, and you would pull guys off the bench. Big V. Big an example, Jack Driscoll at times has given them significant reps in a backup role, and he walks into free agency. So right now, when you look at your starting five, if you assume Jason Kelsey is going to retire and Cam Jerkins starts at center, and let's just for the sake, since we don't know what's going on in the draft right now, say that Tyler Steen's a right guard. Uh, so that rounds out your, your starting five with Maialata and Johnson and Dickerson. Well, who are your backups? I mean, Fred Johnson, definitely, they like him. Made the team last year. He's a veteran. He can be your your left tackle backup, but that's six. Give me seven, eight, and nine yeah. right now. You can't. I well, mean, and, and a lot of this the level that you used to be able to. And a lot of this most is tied to what happens with Kelsey. I mean, if he comes back, all right. Now Jurgens plays right guard. You would think, but if not, fine. Jurgens moves over to center, but now you need a right guard, and, and that guy might not be here either. Yeah, and tell me who your backup right tackle is because that's been an important position with Lane Johnson's injuries in the past. And if Jack Driscoll walks, then who is that guy? Uh, Jeff Mosher from the Inside the Birds podcast and, and the latest podcast, you guys talked a little bit about defense. I think, obviously, when we look over there, the team needs, as uh, we get ready uh, for uh, free agency in less than a month from now, I, I guess this Reddick thing, do you think this has to play out or will play out by the time – well, no free agency gets here. Like, are they going to have some understanding of what's going to happen with him? Uh, I, I think it's it can't hold out too long, right? I mean, eventually the Eagles have the leverage, so they don't have to do anything, and then they can force Hassan Reddick to say, "I'm going to hold out all year long," and the Eagles can take good luck to you um, if you if you decide to do that. But you know, the combine is where a lot of these discussions 
Baltimore had, if you're trying to take a player and get his value and figure out, you know, how the other league, how the league sees him, Combine is helpful for that. Obviously, all the agents are there, all the teams are there. Now, the reason why this thing got out early is because they probably wanted to get a jump. Both sides probably wanted Hassan to get a jump on that and start making those calls now so they can get it taken care of early if they can find uh, a suitable agreement between them early enough. So we'll see. It could happen before. Combine starts next week on uh, Monday slash Tuesday-ish. So uh, we're not that far away. Um, Fletcher Cox, we don't know his future, um, but what does this team think about that position? Do you, what in your mind does this team think about that position? If Fletcher is a, re- a guy they need to target to return, or do they feel okay with Jordan Davis, Jalen Carter, Milton Williams, and maybe a guy like uh, Morrow and Jomu or or uh, uh, Sopo? Wasn't he the quarterback somewhere? Uh, Tui Poloto. Yeah, <laughs> Tui Poloto. Yeah, this is probably the one position, Mike, where you look at and you say, "All right, they're, they're you could say I don't want to call it top heavy. I mean, Jalen Carter and Jordan Davis have to still prove themselves as young players, but first round investments." have flashed at times, um, still have their better ball ahead of them. At least they should. But you're not saying depth is really an issue here, like you're saying at wide receiver or at running back or uh, even offensive line. You're saying, wow, you know, you've got Milton Williams, who has been a very good rotational tackle for them. He enters year four. Uh, Marlon Tui-Pelodu will enter year three. Moro Ajomo is a kid they drafted last year, I want to say last round, seventh round, right? And they liked what they saw from him so that's three names right there behind the starting two of course you're going to add to the group if you lose a Fletcher Cox you may sign a one-year vet may draft another kid but they kept seven defensive tackles on the roster last year Mike remember they had Contavious Street uh, also at the beginning of the year along with Cox Uh, so that made seven they wound up trading Street because they felt that they had good depth there and and maybe that kind of hurt them in the end as, as Cox and Davis sort of, uh, not the, uh, as Davis and Carter sort of regressed a little bit at the end of the year or just didn't put the same production up. But in general, you look at this group and you say, there's good depth here. You can add to it. Sure, they will. But it's not one that you go into the offseason saying, we need interior defensive line. Although I would say, I still think they haven't done this the last two years, but I kind of think that they need a zero technique in Jordan Davis's kind of shape. You know, someone to play the run if Jordan Davis is going to get hurt, a backup who can come in and give you that first down two gap ability because they really don't have a guy like that when he goes down or he can't play or has to come off the field. I was going to ask you, do you think uh, Vic Fangio looks at Jordan Davis and says, I got the perfect guy for my, you know, what I want to do? Hmm. I think he looks at, um, no, I think he looks at Jalen Carter. And if you remember that great Bears defense, everybody thinks about Khalil Mack. Everybody thinks about Roquan um, Smith, right? But Akeem Hicks was an unbelievable player for them, a great interior burst lineman that year. I think he either made Pro Bowl or All-Pro. I mean, he's a, he's a really good player. He's just had trouble staying healthy, and he may have not played last year. But that's the kind of guy that Jalen Carter could be and be even better version of, a big disruptor on the inside who can give you great pass rush and run stoppability. If Jordan Davis could become a pass rusher, yeah, maybe he could see that, but I think Jalen Carter more fits the mold of what Vic Fangio had both in 
Hicks and then maybe going back to the San Francisco days when he had Justin Smith on the defensive line for the San Francisco 49ers. Well, it's funny you say that because when I was like thinking about when they got rid of obviously Sean Desai and it was apparent they were going to get somebody else, I'm thinking to myself, all right, you got to find a coordinator who wants to build a defense around Jalen Carter, similar to what like the Rams did. All right, we got Aaron Donald. We're going to build a defense around this guy. Like, can you find that guy who says this is our best player and we're going to try to build our defense around that guy? So I'm, I'm, I like the fact that you brought up that he's probably excited that he has Jalen Carter. Yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, let's face it. Even if they were running a sh- simple, boring Tampa two four three. You know, like the ones that the Bucks ran with Warren Sapp, I think that any coordinator would be really happy to have a guy of, of uh, Jalen Carter's abilities. But I'm sure, to your point on Vic Fangio and who he's identifying as the guy he thinks that can cause the most disruptions and, and as you said, build around, even mm-hmm. though when I think of build around, I think of edge rushers, but still, it all does start in the on the inside. That's your pocket pusher right there. All right. Uh, we're looking at team needs with Jeff Mosher from the Inside the Birds podcast. And, and obviously on defense, we, we looked at this line, the linebackers. He, he mentioned Roseman did Dean. It sounds like he's part of the plan. But are they more apt to say, we like someone here? Or is it almost apparent to you that there will be someone from outside or the draft being his partner next year? Uh, at what position, Mike? I missed that. Linebacker linebacker. Yeah, obviously. When I say I his partner, Nicobe. I mean N'Kobe Dean, because obviously yeah, Roseman yeah, really no, signaled gonna, him out. They're going to need somebody, Mike. I mean, they're obviously going to need um, to add to that group on a, a lot, not just one guy. They're going to have to draft. They may have to add another veteran as well. I, they can't leave themselves in the same position they left themselves last year, which was, hey, that's okay. You know, if it's August and we don't really like what we have, which is their mentality last year, we'll go sign a couple of guys off the street and Zach Cunningham and Miles Jack, and, you know, one of those two will wind up working out for us, I'm sure. They, I, I can't imagine they're going to take that same approach again. Um, obviously, uh, the secondary has got a lot of questions, right? But mm. you look at... Maddox and his contract situation, and then all those guys that got a taste, you know, the Eli Ricks and the uh, Kaylee Ringos, Josh Job, any of those guys to you stand out as, you know what, they got a guy that's already here. I thought Job, like, really nice. And, you know, immediately when the season began, he got to play because. Avante Maddox got hurt, and they wanted to try James Bradbury at the nickel spot. So they had Job come out and play the outside. And then you saw some some flashes, some good things, and you also saw a kid getting his first taste of NFL experience at times. But as the season, as they decided then to sign Bradley Roby and then play Eli Ricks at nickel instead and move Bradbury back outside, then you really didn't see Job appear again. And even when. Matt Patricia took over, and he felt that James Bradbury had to be benched or had his role reduced. That's when they put Keely Ringo in on the outside instead of Job. So I say all that to say I really don't know what their plan is at the outside If when it comes to those young kids. Is it Job? Is it Ringo? Is that a training camp battle? I know that teams tend to want to favor their draft picks, and because Ringo was a fourth-round pick, and, and not just favor, but he he did do well in practice. We were told he was doing very well in practice, but I don't remember, I didn't hear Job wasn't doing well. So I kind of made me always wonder, did they, did, did Ringo get that elevation uh, to starter last year because he was a fourth round pick 
or was there something else behind it? Yeah, that's I don't know. Uh, but I, it does leave you in the situation to wonder. At least you have two kids who played last year, who showed you something. I mean, the Eagles clearly have to upgrade this position anyway. But to your point, you're asking, what, what about one of those young kids? Uh, you know, Ringo and Job, to me, are the ones to look for. Uh, Jeff Mosher from the Inside the Birds podcast. My last question about this defense, I guess, would be, what is your thoughts on the way the buyer thing? Will he be back here? Different cap, different pay. They, you know, Eddie Jackson's name keeps coming up because of Chicago. Is Byard gone? How do you view? Because uh, I mean, obviously they trade for Byard. It feels like, hey, well, they ripped them off. Like you gave us Byard for what a, a, a late round pick, and now we're all mm-hmm. already asking whether or not that trade was was worth it or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, we talked about this in the pod. I feel like Byard's getting a bad rap because he had to play in three different defenses last year. You know, Tennessee's and then the two different ones the Eagles were trying to play. And so I'm sure that impacted his play. But the bottom line is he's, he's not going to, he's on the cap for $14 million, but it's all not guaranteed. So there's no way the Eagles are going to employ him for that. And there's no way anybody else in the NFL is going to employ him for that. So he's headed for a release or he just agrees to a restructure with the Eagles where he's making, he's taking a pay cut. You know, it's not even a, a restructure where you, you make the same money and it gets pushed around. You're just making far less money. So um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't knock the Eagles for trying to at least bring him back on a much much more team friendly deal and a realistic deal, saying, look, we, we need a veteran safety. I mean, we're like you mentioned, we have Vic Fangio here. He needs a guy with some experience, some chops, and after him, we're talking about Reed Blankenship, who's a number three at best, and we're talking about Sidney Brown coming back from ACL surgery, and they just it's a bare bare cupboard. So. You'll have to weigh the idea of bringing back Bayard, who can still play. I just, you know, he's just not worth fourteen million. Um, versus maybe somebody who Vic already has experience with, like an Eddie Jackson, who got released from the Bears. But it's it's the same situation: a veteran safety who's past his prime, who you're just employing to hold the fort down while you try to get younger, better talent there. Or your the other option, Mike, is you go and look for uh, a second contract kind of guy, like they did with. Malcolm Jenkins, like they did with Rodney McLeod, and say, let's get a really talented kid who's, you know, 24, 25, and, and build that safety group around that kid instead of trying to bring in, you know, trying to re-sign a guy who might be way, way past his prime. Okay, uh, Jeff Mosher, we'll leave with this. Uh, opening day in Brazil, is Reed Blankenship the starter at safety? No, I don't think so, Mike. I mean, you never know who's hurt or what kind of moves are made, but uh, I'd be... I'd be mildly surprised if that were the case. All right. Uh, Jeff Mosher from the Inside the Birds podcast. And, of course, the guys have plenty of off-season material. And we got plenty of off-season stuff here for football at four. We're getting you ready for the start of uh, – by the way, you can start uh, franchising people. I would imagine the Phillies, uh, the Eagles have no candidate for that. But that will start this week. That will lead us into free agency. And then, of course, draft season will kick it into another gear here on the Sports Bash. Jeff Mosher, everybody. Thanks, buddy. See you, Mike. All right, Jeff Mosher from the Inside the Birds podcast here on the Sports Bats Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. We got so much more to get into. We got sound of the day. Holy moly, it's been a busy show. Scott Lauber from the Philadelphia Inquirer is in Clearwater, and he's going to join us at 5 o'clock tonight. Both Rob Thompson and Dave Dombrowski spoke today. Kyle Schwarber was on the Starkville podcast. He had some interesting things to say about hitting leadoff. 
the Phillies getting ready for their first spring training games next week. Full squad workouts are underway, and we'll have that all for you. Coverage of the Phillies spring training right here on the Sports Bash. Frank's going to have his first mailbag tomorrow. So if you have a question for Frank Close, at Frank Close on Twitter X. And the first edition of the Sports Bash Phillies mailbag with Frank Close is tomorrow right here on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Football at 4 brought to you by Bet365. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary. At Bet365, we got sound of the day on the way, plus Scott Lauber from the Philadelphia Inquirer live in Clearwater coming up in about 35 minutes. The Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN and the free mobile app. At 4.30, sound of the day here on the Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. Don't forget, in a half an hour, Scott Lauber from Clearwater with an update on the fills. How does Rob Thompson see Whit Merrifield fitting in? I thought there was some interesting conversation today between the media and Rob Thompson. Dave Dombrowski also spoke today on how the deal kind of got done, why they decided to make the move now, and what went into making this move. That's all at 5 o'clock. With Scott Lauber, the Phillies beat writer from the Philadelphia Inquirer, who was live in Clearwater. But now it's time for today's sound of the day. Josh Henning's my producer, and he has today's sound of the day. Mike, I want to run it back with some more of the audio that was from the Athletic Starkville podcast because it, it was a good 40 plus minutes that they were talking to Kyle Schwarber about a lot of And different his topics. kid. Well, his kids chiming in in the background, you know. My girlfriend, I had it on in like, uh, she kept saying, is somebody's kid in the background? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> like, uh, and, and credit to Schwarber for not telling the kid to like turn around and be like, hey, shut up back there. No. He just kept letting him just like cry away. Yeah. He just kept rolling. He was like, I'm busy. Yeah. <laughs> I got, I'm talking to a Hall of Famer, Jason Stark over here. I'm busy. Uh, but, Stark's co-host, Doug Glanville, I thought his comments about Schwarber, about what he does well as a leadoff hitter, was interesting. I wanted to bring it to the audience to take a listen. Former Phillies leadoff hitter himself, Doug Glanville, on the presumed current Phillies leadoff hitter, Kyle Schwarber. Leadoff position didn't change him. That's a big stress about leading off, especially if you're not as much of a power guy in my case. Where it's like, oh, you got to get on base and you're trying to manufacture things that aren't necessarily in your framework. And the guys that can hone that in, I think they can, they can do well. And I'm going to bring Kyle to this. This is what you're looking for. And, you know, there's a version of Kyle that always knows the strike zone, gets on base, and that sort of plays. But he also maintains the game that he's really taken to that next level, and that is the power game. So Glanville, in 1999, had a historic season for the Phillies. 204 hits in the leadoff spot. He had 50 singles to lead off the game. He had an 887 OPS. Schwarber beat him by 170 points in OPS. Think about that. You think about leadoff guy, 200-plus hits, getting on base, great batting average, and his OPS got destroyed by Schwarber. And you heard Glanville, like, if you listen to the full interview there, Starkville podcast, 
Glanville was almost in awe of the fact that Schwarber's numbers dwarf his and that he had this epic season in 1999 and that he didn't come close leadoff comparison to what Kyle Schwarber did. Yeah, and it's interesting also because, you know, you listen to a guy like Glanville and, you know, and Doug has said this on, on, with you, Michael, here on the Sports Bash as well when he's come on about how, you know, for him, when he looks at Schwarber, you know, he didn't always look at him as, oh, he needs to do this or that. You know, Doug's been very consistent in saying that, you know, Schwarber needs to do what he does best. His job is in to conform to what everybody else wants him to do. Think about this, all right? For people out there that look at the leadoff guy and you have a vision in your mind, Doug Landville had 150 games. He had 204 hits. He hit 325 that year. 325. His on-base percentage was 376, which is pretty good. And he got beat by over 100 points in OPS. And you might say, well, what's what's the difference there? That's how much more productive Schwarber was. That even though Glanville was getting on base and he was... I mean, didn't Doug have 200 hits that year? 204. Yeah. He had 204 hits. He stole 34 bases. All those numbers are the prototype of what people expect from a leadoff. Yeah, you want guys to get on base, steal bases, walk. Now, he didn't walk a whole heck of a lot, and that's where Schwarber gets them, right. is the walks. Schwarber just walks so much, but the power, the RBIs, the runs scored, all that stuff. So here's one leadoff guy, Doug Glanville, who had a historic leadoff season, telling another guy, hey, what what I did was my best year ever. What you did is dwarfing what I did. And what he says is that what Schwarber does well is he stays true to what he does best. And for Doug, that is what makes Schwarber valuable. It is. And uh, listen, that's where we'll talk to Scott Lauber. You know, Schwarber says he doesn't know if he's going to lead off. Rob Thompson suggested, well, I don't know. We've only been here for a day. I don't know what we're going to (laughs) do. I can pretty much bet right now, if I was a betting man, that you're going to see Kyle Schwarber hitting leadoff to open up the season. I think. Now, I gave my lineup earlier in the show today, and I wouldn't do it because I don't think Schwarber should be the leadoff guy. My reasoning is more, I think the Phillies just, if you're going to run it back, you got to do something to shake the lineup up, and I might just try to go Trey Turner leadoff Schwarber in the middle of the lineup and just see if that changes the dynamic of this offense at all. You mentioned running it back. One of the things Schwarber was asked about on the Starkville podcast was about the fact that Schwarber was on a team that previously ran it back, the 2016 and 2017 Cubs. Here's what Schwarber had to say about his experience with that, how it might or may not relate to the current Phillies. Even when you look back and in 2017, the Cubs went to the NLCS, right? We just got the crap kicked out of us by the Dodgers for them to go to the World Series. But I don't think there's real a real big danger being able to say, you know, we didn't do this, we didn't do that this offseason. You know, he mentioned, uh, and, and Castellanos talked about it too, there's a danger of running it back if you don't have the right mix of guys, if they're complacent. You have Schwarber, a guy who has been in the World Series, won a World Series. 
You have Harper, who hasn't won the World Series, but I don't worry about him getting complacent. Trey Turner has won a World Series. So you do have guys on this team that even though you're running it back, they have been champions in other places and want to get back to that spot here. And one of the things that Schwarber talked about, one of the questions that was asked, and he didn't give a great answer, and I think the question would have even been better if it was asked this way. Jason Stark, who's great, by the way, I'm going to try to get him to, to come on the show. Um, he's at the Athletic now, for those of you who wonder what happened to Jason. He asked the question, what's the difference between playing in Philadelphia and playing in Chicago? But I would have liked to also say, or Boston. Like, those three towns all have crazy fan bases. Yep. And he didn't really give a great answer. He just said, look, I, I, there's not really anything. He just said, you know, both of the fan bases are very, um, you know, passionate. They're into it. But he said the one thing with the Phillies fans is kind of the, the, the they kind of demand more than maybe Chicago fans do. Um, but that, you know, he didn't really give a differentiator between the two fan bases. Well, well this is what he said about the Philly fans specifically. Because it, 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 for me, Mike, it sounded like he was trying not to put down Cub fans at all. But he was willing to speak this about Phillies fans. In Philadelphia, you know, they expect the best out of you every single day. And I think that that's a really cool thing to have is that they want you to be great every single day, it, even though you might not have it for 40 games out of the year or whatever it is, you know, they, they still hold you that standard. And that's what we hold ourselves to that standard too, as baseball players. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that they kind of hold you to a different standard and they're going to let you know if your team isn't performing on that day, they're going to mm. let you know it. Yep. Whereas the Cubs fans, if you're not performing on that day, they might give you a pass for the day. I would have liked to heard the the Red Sox, the Boston fan, wrapped into that because he's played in Chicago, Boston, and Philadelphia. So, um, and he said it. Another point of that conversation is, you know, when you're playing in Philly, you're getting the full ballpark, you're getting the energy in these games, and there's nothing like it. He, you know, he told a story about Soto saving one of the playoff games. And that Soto, after the game was over, like game two of like the world, the, the wild card or, or one of the series. NLDS. And he said, Soto just looked at him and said, Oh my God, that was so cool. Yep. And he was talking about like, yeah, the, the, the fans here and the energy, like that every player should get a chance to play. Experience and that's why that, this yeah. team, I think is, is getting, is okay kind of running it back a little bit. Now, I, are they better than the Braves? No. Are they better than what the Dodgers have done? That's a tough one because the Dodgers pitching is what let them down last year. And right. I don't know that they're pitching because Otani can't pitch this year, to my knowledge, right? right? He cannot. Right. So I don't know if they're going to have enough pitching. I mean, they reluctantly re-signed Clayton Kershaw. I mean, that's just more like, a, well, you can go out there and throw and you're better than fill in the blank who might be available in free agency. Yeah, their pitching is going to be a problem. I mean... We'll see what kind of pitching they, that, how their pitching holds up and if they have enough pitching to get them. Like they might win 120 games in the regular season. But in the postseason. But in the postseason, are they going to have enough pitching in a five game, seven game series? Eh, I'm not so sure about that. Look, if you're the Phillies, you almost would want the Dodgers, this version of the Dodgers in the postseason series because you got Wheeler, Nola, Ranger, Suarez, and they don't have anybody like that. 
Like they're they're hoping Kershaw's got one more year. They're hoping Bueller comes back from an injury. They're hoping their entire pitching staff is built on hopes and dreams. Yeah, it's one of those things where they're going to have like. Regular season, they're going to out-hit you. Yep. They're going to beat up on bad pitching. They're probably going to have an historic offensive season. They're going to beat up on bad pitching from bad teams, but that can only get you so far in the playoffs, as we've seen with teams like the Dodgers and the Braves the last couple of years. If you cannot get – you can have these lineups that beat – that's what we talk about. The Braves lineup is so deep and so good – and half the year, or 75% of the year, when you're playing the Pirates and you're getting their third, fourth, and fifth guy in a series, yep. you're going to beat up on them. You don't get that in the playoff series. Exactly. Uh, speaking of guys who do play for the Phillies who are really good, Kyle Schwarber talked about how impressed he has been with two of the Phillies' young studs. You see a lot of our guys who were quote-unquote younger and, and still are young and how they keep improving their game. Bryson Stott is one of the top second basemen in the game. You look at Al Bohm, who um, you know, I'll put my money on that guy. If there's a guy on, on third base less than two outs, he's going to get him in somehow, some way. And the way that he keeps improving on his defense, it, it, it's been fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the big thing for me running it back is that hoping that those guys take another jump. Because two years ago, those guys were bottom of the order kind of eight, seven, eight guys, and you yep. weren't relying on them. Last year, Bohm is now in the middle of the lineup. Stott has worked his way to the middle of the lineup, and they took a big jump. The big question will be, can those two guys both take another jump? Because I think you're going to see your JTs, your Castellanos, your Schwarbers maybe take a tiny step back which means those two guys, primarily, he talked about Marsh, too, in the podcast, taking steps forward. They need to go, like Stott, I would think, has to try to get himself to a 15 to 18 homer guy. Bohm's got to be 25 to maybe 28 homer guy. They need to get more from those two young players. You can't you can't flatline at 27 years old for Bohm and, and, and Stott even younger. Right. Stott's turning 25, turning 26. Bohm is 26 turning 27. You know, you you want to see them keep elevating. And the way Schwarber talked about it, he feels like they'll continue to do that, which I thought was interesting. Well, I can't imagine Schwarber's going to say, I think those guys are going to suck. No, but like, for example, and <laughs> I'm not, I'm the, you know, for example, the one audio cut I didn't grab was, you know, when, when, when the conversation turned to like Christopher Sanchez, he didn't really have anything to say. He's like, oh, well, you know, he's getting better. He's growing, you know. Like, well, like, he did say that he thought Suarez would be an ace, ace. on many staffs. Yeah, he thought. I thought be, that was interesting. He did say that, but when it when it came to like a Christopher Sanchez, he was just like, oh well, you know, he was impressive, you know. Whereas with Boehm, he's like, look, this guy's improved his defense. This guy's been clutch. Like, I trust this guy when the guy's on third. Well, on the third you heard base. what he said right there. Less than two outs, runner on third base. Yeah. That you got Alec Bohm. That that's like those are much. tangible details from from a guy who's been around the game for a while. Yeah, I that was cool. I, I, and listen, I think that he's right about Bohm. I think people just didn't understand what Bohm did really well last year, which was hit with runners in scoring position. Did he hit all the home runs you wanted? No. Is he a guy that hits for enough power at the corners? Probably not. But when it came to having guys on base and needing a run. He had one of the top five batting averages with runners in scoring position in all of baseball, and you can't ask for much more than that. And realistically, if if what the best you get from Bohm 
is only 25 to 20 home runs a year, but he's consistently giving you 100 RBI a year, you'll you'll take the trade off, right? You'll take the RBI. Well, he's got it. He drove in 97 last year. Yeah, he's got to be in that number, which means he's got to continue to hit with runners on base. And if he doesn't do that, then his numbers aren't good enough. Right. If he doesn't hit with runners in scoring position, uh, batting average with runners in scoring position isn't one of the top five to ten in the game, then no, he is not productive enough. Right. But if he's going to drive in 97 runs and hit over 300 with runners on base, that's a different story. Right. But if he's not driving those runs in and he's not hitting with runners on base, his numbers are not good enough. Do you think it's possible that long term that maybe Stott becomes the guy who becomes a better home run hitter than Bone? Because we've seen Stott hit some bombs. I don't think Stott, no, I don't think Stott is going to be a You're, big home run guy. Okay. I, I mean, 18 to 20 would probably be the number for me, uh, for Bryson Stott. If he's like a, if he's like a, last year he had 15. Right. So he can get an 18 to 20. I think that's kind of what his ceiling is. No, I don't see him. You know, being that big. Do you think Bohm is built from the other? Well, I mean, obviously, Bohm's a much bigger guy than Stott is. He has that big, long swing. He puts the ball in play. He doesn't strike out a lot. The big thing is, can he add? I mean, last year, we all said, man, he looks a lot bigger. Can he add the power? Now, he went to 20 home runs last year. I still think he's got 25 to 28 in him. He missed a little bit of time last year, but that's probably about two to three. So maybe he could have hit 23 homers. But I think he's got to be around 25, where to me, Stott is probably more. He's capped out. Well, he had 15 last year, 10 the year before. I don't know. Is he about an 18 homer guy? Can he he turn on three more? That would probably be the number for me. I'm just just curious trying to figure out what these guys' ceilings are because I feel like – these guys are nowhere near their best yet, and I'm curious what their best could be. Sports Bass Live, 97.3 ESPN. Scott Lauber at 5 o'clock. We'll talk more Phil's with Merrifield, where he thinks this lineup is going to go. What are some of the questions still down there in Clearwater? Is there anything else happening with Dave Dombrowski? He kind of talked about today why the Merrifield deal got done. He said, listen, I had him and Rob Thompson have a conversation. If Rob felt comfortable, because I see people on our social media pages saying, oh my, I see this being becoming a problem. Because today, Rob Thompson said, oh, you know, he can play second base, give Stott a day off. And people are saying, oh, here we go. This is already going to be a problem. Merrifield's going to want to play. He doesn't have enough at bat. All that stuff. Well, Dombrowski said today, he talked to Rob Thompson, and Rob Thompson felt pretty comfortable about going with them. So we'll talk to Lauber coming up in 12 minutes from now on the Sports Bash live on 97.3 ESPN. It's the Sports Bash. Mike Gill. Do I have everybody's attention now? On 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Sports Bash 97.3 ESPN. Mike Gill with you. Don't forget to visit my friend Rocco over at Key Acura of Atlantic City. If you're car shopping right now, now through February 29th, it's a great time. He can get you into 2024 Acura Integra lease for just $369 a month. Also, if you're looking for something a little nicer, maybe, how about an MDX lease for $489 a month? Beginning March 2nd, their service department will be open on Saturdays again. So stop in and see Rocco at Key Acura of Atlantic City on Tilton Road and EHT. It's right up the street from our office. It's the small but friendly dealer online at Key Acura of Atlantic City. 
dot com. All right, we got a lot more to go, including Scott Lauber down in Clearwater as uh, the Phillies today had their first full squad workouts, and Whit Merrifield was in attendance. The team announced. Uh, officially the signing of Merrifield. And Rob Thompson had some interesting things to say about how he'll fit in, where he might play, where he could hit in the lineup, how he'll be used. We'll get Scott's interpretation of that coming up next on the Sports Bass Live on 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. We've got that and uh, today's big three Coming up at 5.30 tonight. By the way, hopefully, hopefully, we get, uh, we talked earlier in the show about uh, Joel Embiid's return, but hopefully uh, we get the Flyers back on the winning track after that loss to the Devils because we talked about it on Friday. The loss to the Devils, the Flyers could have had a nine-point advantage in the Metro. Instead, it's just a five-point advantage. So hopefully they get back to the winning track. They play Chicago on Wednesday night. In a game you can hear right here on 97.3 ESPN. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Now live, here's Mike Gill. And Witt told uh, Rob Thompson that he would be happy to accept the role. He understood what the playing time was, but which was great. Rob Thompson told me afterwards, Topper said, I loved his response. He says, but I'll, I'm going to play well enough to show you that I'll, I'll get more bats. All right, that was Dave Dombrowski today, Whit Merrifield. How did they get Whit Merrifield on the one-year deal? Where will he hit? How much will they play him? How's this all going to work? Rob Thompson spoke today. Did he play his hand with something and then have to kind of backtrack it? Scott Lauber is here in Clearwater with the Phils from the Philadelphia Inquirer as the Phils full squad is back. They're kind of running it back, plus Whit Merrifield. So we'll get into that and more with Scott Lauber, who is lucky enough to be with the Phillies right now in Clearwater here on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Scott, what's up, buddy? Hey, Mike. How are you? All is well, and uh, obviously uh, this team running it back has kind of been the theme here. But on Friday, they bring Whit Merrifield in, kind of a super utility type of guy. So initially, in your mind, uh, how does he kind of fit into what this team was looking for? So I have been on the Whit Merrifield train for probably three years. I don't know how many <laughs> stories I've written where I've suggested that Whit Merrifield would be a really uh, a really good fit for them. Um, initially, I remember thinking Whit Merrifield would be a good fit in the outfield as an everyday player back when they were looking for center field help. Um, I, I think he fits on this particular club because he plays everywhere, right? And so, you know, I remember um, having a conversation back in November with Dave Dombrowski, and I said, listen, I, I understand the idea of not wanting to block Yohan Rojas, right? They, 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 they talked a lot about not wanting to block Rojas in center field. And I get that. Um, but you know, I said, look, don't you also have to cover yourself, right? In case Rojas doesn't have a good spring and maybe isn't ready to, to be a major league player yet, a major league hitter yet. And, um, you know, he said, look, well, that's tricky because, you know, if you go out and you talk to free agents, what they want are at bats. You know, they want playing time. And he's like, I'm not going to guarantee somebody playing time um, if it's going to block Rojas. I mean, we want to we want to see if this kid can play. And the beauty of what Merrifield is, you know, he could cover you in the event that Rojas is not ready. But if Rojas is ready 
um, Whit Merrifield can be like sort of like I call them like a tenth man, like a sixth man in, in in basketball, right? Like he can play five days a week at five different positions. So he doesn't block anybody. Um, he enables Rob Thompson, I think, to give guys a, uh, more of a rest. He gives you a platoon, um, a platoon uh, possibility uh, in left field for Brandon Marsh at second base for Bryson Stott. Now I think Stott's going to play almost every day, but if you've got a super tough lefty on the mound and you want to give Stott a day. Uh, because of the matchup, Whit Merrifield can go play second base. So, you know, he's going to get at bats, whether he's a, an everyday, quote unquote, everyday guy or not. And I think that's what makes him um, such a good fit for them in terms of what they're looking for. Yeah, and it's interesting because, uh, you know, some people uh, listening to the show today are concerned that he's going to take it bats away from Stott, you know, because the first thing Thompson says, well, you know, he can play second base, go to the outfield. It sounds like, hey, if there's that situation where Stott needs a day, but that he primarily will just kind of bounce all over the place. But that seems like something that they wanted to make sure he was okay with because there were some reports that he wanted to be a starting second baseman, right? He did for sure. You know, I think early in the off season, that was his, his, um, that was what he was looking for. You know, he was interestingly enough, he was at the winter meetings. It's not, I wouldn't say it's uncommon, but it's not especially common for players to attend the winter meetings. And, and Whit Merrifield was there presumably to have some meetings with teams face to face. And I think at that point in December, he was looking for an everyday job as a second baseman. You know, he thinks second base is his best position if he had to pick one. And, um, he was looking for an opportunity to do that. Now, he's also been around now for a while. He's 35 years old. And one thing he has never done is win. He was on, you know, he missed the Royals, um, the Royals, uh, two really good teams in 14 and 15. Um, the 15 team that won the World Series. He made his major league debut the year after that, 16, played for six or seven consecutive losing teams. Then he finally went to the Blue Jays, got to the playoffs the last two years, and they got bounced in the first round both years. Um, he hasn't had a chance to really win, and he talked about that today. He said, I've led the league in hits. I've been an all-star. I've played every day. I've done a lot of things in the game, but what I haven't done is win, and that's really what I care about at this point in my career. And, you know, he knows Bryce Harper. He played with um, Bryce Harper's brother in college. He knows Matt Strom very well from their days together in Kansas City. And I think he's heard a lot of things, and he's seen it um, through the television, what it looks like in Philadelphia playing in the postseason. Um, and I think he wanted a taste of that. He wanted a part of that. So if he wasn't going to go play every day, um, this was a good place to come. And I'll be honest, I mean, you know, Rob Thompson said, look, uh, or Dave Dombrowski said, look, I wanted him to talk to Rob Thompson before we made this deal and and, and have Rob outline the role he's going to play and make sure he was okay with it. And Merrifield said, I'm okay with it, but I'm also going to tell you right now, I'm going to play well enough to make you put me in the lineup every day. Well, and, and if that's the case, um, that's a good thing. Right, and that's where, you know, it's like, so do we see this guy as like 130 games, 145 games, like pretty much every day? How do you kind of envision his usage? He is 35 years old, but he is coming off a year where he was an all-star, although the second half uh, yeah. of that year he did slow down a bit. No, I I don't think that they're they're expecting that. Um, you know, I, 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 I think, you know, for me, I'd be really, really surprised if Stott um, – loses any playing time over this. Like I said, I think if there is a super tough lefty matchup, um, 
that, that might make sense to give Stott a day, though, you know, on that day, right, to get him out of there. But Stott showed last year he can hit lefties. And so they're not going to platoon at second base. I don't think people have to worry about that. I could see them platooning a little bit more in left field, especially if Brandon Marsh doesn't hit lefties. He hasn't hit lefties much in his first couple of years in the big leagues. So that's a possibility. Um, but really, I think ultimately Merrifield's number of games and number of at-bats might depend on if anyone gets hurt. You know, I mean, you can't predict injuries. I think if somebody gets hurt, he's going to see more time. If somebody really struggles, he's going to see more time. Um, but, you know, I think if everyone stays healthy and they play to the level the Phillies expect, I think he's going to be, as I said, a guy who kind of bounces around and gives helps give everybody a, a blow every now and then and, and – you know, might play five days a week, but five different positions. And, um, you know, that's a good guy to have. Sure is. Uh, now, interesting today, when asked where he might hit in the lineup, I don't know if Rob Thompson might have slipped here because <laughs> he got a follow-up that, uh, you know, I don't know. We've only been on here one day. But he said, yeah, you know, if Schwarber needs a day off, he could hit lead off. And yeah. then if Stott is out, he could slide into that spot. The follow-up was kind of, do you know where Schwarber's going to hit? He said, well, I've only been down here one day. But was that enough of a slip-up for you to say that he's already got his mind made up, that Schwarber again will hit leadoff? Not that that's a bad thing, just that that, that is not questioned. Yeah, I caught that also. And and um, I'll tell you what, um, it was notable, but, I, I mean, I, I – I kind of sort of think maybe his mind is already made up. I mean, look, we talked about this with him back in December at the winter meetings and again in January in Philadelphia. Um, you know, and, and look, he, he admits, and I believe him, that, you know, he, he scratches out a lot of lineups, um, you know, throughout the offseason. He plays around with the order and tries to figure out what might work best. And there are reasons to experiment with other people in the leadoff spot, whether it's Stott or Turner or Merrifield if he's in the lineup. Um, but the thing Rob Thompson keeps coming back to, and i got to tell you, it's a hard thing to overlook, <laughs> is that they win when Kyle Schwarber bats leadoff. I mean, last year, yeah, you know, they, they took off in June when they put him in the leadoff spot. He didn't bat leadoff much early in the year because they wanted him lower in the order while Harper was out, and they struggled. They put him back at the top, and they took off. Maybe it's a coincidence, but it's happened two years in a row now, and so – it's a large enough sample that it's probably more than just a coincidence. Um, it's hard to overlook that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Schwarber has literally hit everywhere in the lineup in his career, one through nine. He has hit everywhere in the lineup. And I believe him when he says it doesn't much matter to him where he hits. But the numbers are the numbers, and he tends to get on base, and he tends to see a lot of pitches, and he tends to produce out of the leadoff spot. So I know it's not conventional, and I know – it's not what we all grew up with in terms of like what we think of when we think of a leadoff hitter. But I kind of think that like, you know, Rob Thompson comes back to the scoreboard um, when he thinks about, you know, taking Kyle Schwarber out of the leadoff spot. And it's something that's very difficult for him to do. I will say, uh, by the way, Trey Turner has hit leadoff more times than any other spot in the lineup, as has Merrifield and Schwarber. One of his most productive spots, why he has not hit there all that often, is the four hole. And I would just ask you, Scott, you know, if you're going to run it back and bring the same team back that came up just short, I don't mind you doing it, but don't you have to maybe try to shake up if you're going to bring the same guys back, maybe shake that up a little bit, or you say, you know what, this is our best team with him there. We're going to go after it like that again. Or do you at least say, you know what, 
Turner's done it more than any other spot. Let's try that out. They love Turner in the two hole. And, um, and Turner's performance, I know prior to last year, uh, in the leadoff spot versus the two hole and even versus the three hole was almost identical. He does not, um, he does not perform notably better in any one over the others. So, I mean, one thing we know about Thompson is he likes to alternate right, left, right, left. Uh, Harper likes to hit third. Uh, they like Turner in the two hole. Um, so that would mean you need a left-handed hitter in the, you know, in the leadoff spot if you want to alternate left, right, left, right. Um, and you need a right-handed hitter in, in the cleanup spot if you want to alternate left, right, left, right. So if you're not going to hit Schwarber leadoff, it's going to be Stott, who's a left-handed hitter. Uh, if you're going to go Stott, Turner, Harper, and then you want to maintain that alternate, alternate thing, um, Schwarber's not going to hit until fifth. And I'm not sure I like him that low. Um, guy sees a lot of pitches. Yeah. Um, he really can grind out and at bat and he does draw walks. I know he strikes out a lot and it's maddening how often he, he doesn't make contact, but he does draw a lot of walks. So he's on base a lot. Right. And a lot of this, um, Scott, would be tied to then, I guess, Harper. I don't want to say insisting, but feeling most comfortable because you could go Turner, Harper, Bohm, Schwarber, and go through left, uh, right, left, right, left, right, left, all the way down to the nine hole. But that would mean right. Harper would have to, I guess, agree to go to the two spot. And that doesn't sound like it would happen. He's done it before, but I, you know, he, but, you know, he's always talked about feeling more comfortable in the three hole or the four hole, you know, the cleanup spot. He's hit cleanup a, a, a bunch, but, you know, again, you know, if he bats third, he bats in the first inning every day, um, which you kind of like that. Um, you kind of like trying to maximize that uh, and getting into the plate as much as possible. So, I, you know, if I was a betting man, I would bet on Schwarber, Turner, Harper, um, and then maybe maybe Castellanos, maybe Bohm. I mean, you know, go from there. But I would bet on those top three being Schwarber, Turner, Harper. I was going to say, uh, you know, Bohm finished the year hitting in the top of the order. Castellanos started last year at the top of the order. How do you think that is arranged to start this season? Probably depends on, um, you know, who's the hotter hitter coming into the season. I mean, you don't put much stock in spring training results, but who looks better at the plate? Uh, who's having better at bats? Um, you know, and, and, and who is going to better protect Harper? You know, to be honest with you, um, you know, like I'm not looking at the numbers right now, but I do feel like we asked Alec Bohm a lot of questions last year about like, boy, you know, they walked Harper to get to you and you came up with a big hit. Like that did happen a lot last year. So, um, I think he know, was top ten in runners and scoring, but maybe even top five. Yeah, I mean runners and scoring position, two outs, two strikes. I mean he did well in those situations last year. So, you know maybe you give him a shot um, at at kind of taking that four. And he did hit twenty homers and uh, he did drive in almost a hundred runs. And um, they think that there's even more power in there. Um, and so you know as he gets older, so maybe you let him sort of take that spot and and see if if he can uh take the ball and run with it there. Uh Scott Lauber from the Inquirer, um I've been asking a lot of people this question. It's October and we're having this conversation. Who leads the team in saves? Oh, great question. Um <laughs> oh, I don't know. I honestly I don't know and I don't think that they care that much. Um you know, I could see Alvarado, Dominguez, Kirkering Hoffman, any of them. I mean, I think they'll all end up with saves. I don't know which one will have the most. 
I guess I'm inclined to say Alvarado because he probably has the most experience of that group. But if you told me right now that Orion Kirkering was going to end up being the closer, it wouldn't stun me. Um, I, I would I would say I could see a path to that happening, maybe not right away, but at some point, you know. So, uh, look, they didn't go into last year expecting necessarily that Craig Kimbrell would lead the team in saves. I think we were having a lot of conversation about, like, Craig Kimbrell, who's been a closer pretty much his whole career. How's he going to adapt to not being the closer all the time? Um, So they're kind of back to that uh, sort of arrangement, and I think that's how they like it. So um, I would bet Alvarado, but I wouldn't uh, wouldn't bet my my life savings on it or anything like that. And I agree with you uh, on two things. One, you know, last year they signed Kimbrell and didn't think much of it, I guess, in my mind. I was like, "Uh, all right. He ends up with 23 saves, pitched in 71 games, which means somebody's got to finish those games out and appear in 71 games. The second part I agree with you on that you mentioned is I don't know, do they think or want that Kirkering is the guy that eventually is the one they trust the most? They might get there, like I said. I mean, look, I think that the uh, the fact that they, you know, they were, they explored a few different reliever options in the offseason. They liked Jordan Hicks a lot. Uh, he ended up signing a contract with the Giants because they're going to give him a chance to start. Uh, they liked Robert Stevenson a lot. He ended up signing with the Angels because he wanted to stay close to home. He's from Southern California. Um, so they were looking at late-inning type guys, but the fact that they settled on not getting one um, tells me that they think Kirkering is going to play a big role uh, in their bullpen. You know, I wrote about this uh, last month at some point. You know, I said, look, if you look at what they've done over the, the last few years, they've kind of had that spot. Uh, in the bullpen for a veteran closer type, whether it was David Roberts, or, uh, you know, whether it was, uh, um, you know, Hector Neris was replaced by Corey Kniebel, who was replaced by David Robertson, who was replaced by Craig Kimbrell. You know, they sort of filled that role with that, filled that spot, that seat in the bullpen with a veteran guy who had some closing experience. So this time they didn't replace Kimbrell with that kind of guy. And so, and they had opportunities to, there were guys that were out there and they decided once Stevenson and and uh, and and Hicks uh, took other other offers for other reasons, they decided, hey, look, let's just keep the bullpen as it is, which tells me they have a ton of confidence in Kirkering stepping into a late inning role uh, and and uh, finishing off games at times. So pitching in high leverage spots in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings. So I think that he will get save opportunities, and um, you know maybe he works his way into you know, more of a ninth inning type of thing as, as the season goes along. Uh, Scott Lauber's with the Phillies, and uh, obviously uh, the everyday nine seems to be pretty set. I guess the one thing would be if Rojas just absolutely uh, falls on his face, they might have to make a decision there. But are, are you inclined to say that the everyday nine uh, is pretty locked in? And I guess uh, what happens with Merrifield and left field if they're going to platoon? Is that really the only question? I, I guess bench spots are up for grabs. Yeah, so no, I, I agree with that. I think the everyday nine, um, again, unless Rojas looks totally overmatched, uh, is, and, and not, and again, you know, they won't judge that based on his batting average in spring training. They'll base it on the quality of his at bats and how he looks. I mean, if he's hitting the ball hard and he's hitting it at people, they won't, um, they won't, you know, take that away from him. Uh, they'll, they'll take that as a positive. Um, so they'll look at the quality of his at bats, how he's, how hard he's hitting the ball, how 
um, how many pitches he's seeing, how he's working at bats, you know, what does it look like? Um, and as long as he's, you know, um, as long as he is a representative hitter at the bottom of the lineup, they will, they will make him their, their center fielder. So, you know, I would say that, um, Rojas and then, you know, we'll watch Brandon Marsh's knee and, uh, and see, um, you know, they're still thinking that he will make it back in plenty of time to be ready for opening day. So we'll continue to monitor that. But, you know, those would be the two things, the two variables that would throw the starting nine uh, out of whack a little bit. Merrifield helps that situation. If if Rojas starts the year in AAA, Marsh can play center field and Merrifield can play left every day. If Marsh isn't ready to go, Merrifield could be the left fielder um, next to Rojas in center. So uh, that helps. We know, uh, we think we know that Garrett Stubbs will be the backup catcher again. So that's a spot on the bench and I think Sosa's got a spot because he can play shortstop and he can play a number of different infield positions. So he's got a spot on the bench. So if everyone is healthy and everyone um, produces to the, you know, looks right and produces to the level that they're supposed to, there's really one job up for grabs and it's, it's a bench spot and it probably comes down to Jake Cave or Christian Pache. And um, that's maybe what we'll be talking about the last (laughs) week of spring training if everything goes well. Uh, Scott Lauber's, uh, with the Phils, and of course, Clearwater is, uh, beautiful this time of year. What is it, Dan? What's the temperature right now? So, I gotta tell you, um, we, it, it was brutal this weekend. Um, there was, my family came down because it's a holiday weekend for schools and everything, and, um, they came in Friday night. It rained all day Saturday, it rained all day Sunday. The sun finally came out today. It was chilly, um, in the 50s, mm. uh, maybe it got up to the high 60s, but, um, at least it was sunny today and, and, and a really nice day to be outside. So, um, you know, I'm hoping for a better weather week. I know that, uh, it snowed back home. So no one's gonna, um, no one's gonna feel bad for us for getting a little bit of rain here. Well, a lot of rain here, uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's good to finally see the sun today. Yeah. Games this weekend coming up and, uh, obviously we'll keep an eye on that. Yeah. I know, uh, my girlfriend's coming down with me this year and she's been down there in the past and she's reluctant to go sometimes because she says, I don't want to waste a trip on a place that's going to be cold. It's so hit or miss sometimes down <laughs> there. Um, but we're not going to like mid March. You're hoping that you oh, get you'll more be consistent good. weather there, but. All right, man. It's good to catch up with you, and uh, obviously so much going on. We'll be keeping an eye on Scott Lauber from the Philadelphia Inquirer, everybody. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Mike. Anytime. As always, Scott Lauber here giving us the insight on the Phillies and that Whit Merrifield signing. It's really, you know, this is a team that, look, they went to the World Series, lost. Upset in the NLCS last year, lost. As Mike McGarry said earlier, and I thought he said – very well put. This is probably the last shot for this group of guys together. If they don't get it done with this group this time, you got to start thinking about moving on and, and doing something different. You know, you're running it back. Fine. We're going to let you run it back. But if you don't get it done this time, we got to think about doing something different. Sports Bass Live 97.3 ESPN. Coming up, it's the big three. And no Philly sports tonight or tomorrow. No Flyers, no Sixers. Both have the night off. They're both off tonight and tomorrow. Flyers back Wednesday. Sixers back Thursday. Sixers Friday. Flyers Saturday. They both play Sunday. And you can hear all those games right here on 97.3 ESPN. When we return, it's today's Big Three. The Sports Mike Gill. And I am the voice 
of the Voiceless on 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. All right, 530 Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. I'm Mike Gill. We've got a uh, quiet night in Philly sports, but we do have today's big three. What are the big three topics of conversation for you today? Well, I want to start with some baseball talk, Mike. You know, uh, we've been doing a lot of Phillies talk throughout the day, but I want to get some non-Phillies talk with your thoughts on some of these stories that came up over the weekend. So, as you know, when you were in Vegas, the topic of the Oakland A's moving to Las Vegas has been a bit of a controversial topic in many circles. David Sampson, who's been a guest on here on the Sports Bash, has been very vocal, saying that they will never go to Vegas. But, Mike, what if I told you that the A's next location will not be Vegas, but could be Sacramento. Well, I have heard that they're talking about playing games there in the meantime. I know that David Sampson has been pretty insistent that this Las Vegas thing is not going to happen. Now, Vegas is saying we're building a... One of the reasons he doesn't think this is going to happen is... He doesn't feel that the plot of land is big enough for a major league stadium. Mm-hmm. They only have apparently like nine acres of land. And the Tropicana in Vegas is getting torn down. And that is where they're talking about building this plot of stadium. So well, he's saying yeah. he has built a stadium before and nine acres is not enough room. Well, the reason why Sacramento is a conversation actually has something not to do with the acreage. So I was reading this article from The Athletic over the weekend from um, Evan Drellich, and he was explaining— Wait, is he, Now, I've read that they're talking about playing in Sacramento parked, like, until the Vegas thing is ready. Well, because apparently their lease is up in Oakland, right? Right. Well, there's two different issues. One is the A's are trying to extend their lease in Oakland to keep them in town through 2027. But the idea is, is that if they can't get that lease done or if Vegas falls through, that Sacramento would be the the location that makes the most sense for one reason, television money. The moment the A's move out of the Bay Area, they forfeit all the money from NBC Sports California. But if they relocate to Sacramento, they get to keep a majority of the money because they are still technically in the territory of the contract. Yeah. Um, listen, all these, that's another problem, is a lot of these um, regional sports networks are bellying up as well. They're, they're falling apart. So um, I don't who, who's there? I don't know if were they Bally's or NBC Sports. I NBC think the sports. NBC Sports ones are okay. NBC Sports California. Right. Like So what, like the Phillies play. Right. NBC Sports Philadelphia. They're NBC Sports California. Yes. All right. Yeah, I mean, this whole story is going to be interesting because, obviously, I think the M- the Major League Baseball and the NBA are in a race right now of who can get to Vegas first. Right. And I contend that that town is not does not have enough population to support three, let alone four, Major League franchises. I could be wrong, but I don't think that it's a good idea to continue to saturate that market with more entertainment options, especially with the two that are already out there. Now, the outside team city, I should say, outside city looking in to try to entice the A's is Salt Lake City. There are a bunch of investors in Salt Lake City that are trying to get the A's to come out there as well. But if they go out there, 
they completely forfeit the TV money. Yeah, that's another uh, thing avenue that I had not heard. I did listen to Samson's podcast today, and I didn't get through the whole thing. He's been talking about it a lot in the last couple of days here, but he is insistent that the Vegas thing is not going to happen. Well, if we're going by the TV, we follow the money, right? Always. Then it seems like Sacramento might be the new home of the A's. Well, I did see future. that they're planning on, like, talking about playing games there for, like, two seasons until the ballpark, because it's going to take about that long for the Vegas thing to get up and running Correct. anyway. Yeah. if it gets up and running, which is a whole other conversation, because, again, for those who don't know, last week the A's in the city of Oakland did sit down and meet about what they're going to well, do. Well, that's the because the Vegas thing is kind of falling apart, as David Sampson predicted. And speaking of stadiums and their futures... Did you see this story about the Chicago White Sox? I heard Samson was talking about this morning that the White Sox, oh, are they talking about moving to Nashville? No. Or is that something that they were? That's not this story. So, well, it it might tie into the story that might. they have been um, kind of hanging this over the city's head because they want to move to someplace else out of Chicago. They want a new stadium, and they want to try to beat the Bears who want to go to Arlington and they're threatening to go to Nashville if they don't get their way. Right. So here's the story that I have in front of me. So White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf is asking Illinois Governor uh, J.B. Pritzker and other state leaders for roughly $1 billion, Mike, $1 billion of public money to fund the construction of the team's proposed stadium in the South Loop, according to uh, – Chicago business. Well, Yahoo Sports is reporting that the evaluation for the stadium is roughly about what the Baltimore Orioles were recently sold for, $1.75 billion, and that the stadium, basically the White Sox, want the government to pay for almost the entire like everybody else. load of this. And they're using a potential move as a threat to make them do it. Yeah, like everybody's trying to do at this point. I mean... Are the White Sox a big enough fear, a draw, that if they left Chicago, people would care at all? It's a good question because I feel like – I've been to their ballpark, by the way. I mean, I don't want to say they're completely irrelevant out there. I don't know enough to say that, but they're certainly not the national draw that the Cubs are. Right. When you go to Chicago, you think, let's go to a Cubs game. You don't say, let's go to a White Sox game. Sure, absolutely. And the White Sox ballpark is not in the greatest neighborhood. I mean, you're more likely to go to a Nets game in New York than – to go to a White Sox game in Chicago, mm, maybe I don't know about that. I can't. I mean, you might be right. I have no idea. Barclays is a pretty nice arena. Uh, in fact, I talked to somebody who I asked. So when we were in Vegas, a topic of conversation that we had was what is the best stadium or arena that you've been to to watch a live sporting event? Okay, like what is the best? Maybe historic or just you you loved it. And one of the guys at the table said Barclays Center. Makes sense. I've heard I've heard a lot of good things about Barclays Center. So I've never been there, so I can't confirm or deny. The other thing with the White Sox is they are trying to claim that they are owed revenue from a pre existing two percent hotel occupancy tax and that it should have been extended to them by the Illinois Sports Facilities Authorities, outstanding bonds. So they're trying to also use this hotel tax, supposedly cover money, because they were owed it during the COVID-19 pandemic and they never received it. All right, well, this stuff is over my head. Next.
That stuff I don't have. <laughs> I, any, right. I have. I don't know what to do about that. I, what do you want me to say about that? <laughs> this is a. There, there's where the big three turns into a Josh thing. Uh, what do you want me to do with that? All right. Well, how about this? Do thing? I have COVID payments in my pocket that I can give the White Sox to keep them there? Well, you wouldn't. No, of course I don't. Uh, what do you think about this? Adam Silver says the league is considering ending G the League The All-Star Ignite. game? <laughs> no, G League Ignite. I was making a joke. Uh, G League Ignite, yeah. The G League Ignite was a bad decision to begin with. It. I don't understand why we enable people, why we go out of our way to enable these decisions. The NBA created G League Ignite to enable people to leave college. So the NBA tried to basically sabotage college basketball, their feeder program. And then, almost like the streaming services, realize, uh-oh, this isn't working because the NIL is offering these guys more money than we can. And now this G League Ignite thing is blowing up in their face. And that's what Adam Silver said to the media this weekend. He says, I'm not sure what the Well, why can I see that? And I'm sitting here in Atlantic City. And he can't see that. I said this three years ago. This thing is going to be a disaster because this NIL thing is going to wipe these the G League thing out. Well, he claims there was a, quote, hole in the marketplace that we thought we were filling before NIL came along. Yeah, they were looking at greed. That's what everybody sees. And that's why, look, decision makers are idiots for the most part. They get to these positions because for the most part, Nobody wants you to actually make a decision. They put you there because you're not going to make a decision. And then the one time you're put into a place where you have to make a decision, you failed at it. This is an easy one. Much like the streaming services that I talked about earlier. You lost. The streaming services beat you to the punch. This is like the betting apps, okay? You have DraftKings, you have FanDuel, and you have BetMGM and Caesars. They all got out to the market. Well, this whole ESPN bet comes along, right? And they decide we're going to get in. We're going to pen gaming goes to Barstool. That doesn't work. So they kick Barstool to the curb and they go to ESPN bet. Let's try that. You're late. You're too late to the game. And ESPN bet is not doing very well either. So all the streaming services, Netflix comes along, then Amazon Prime comes along. So then what happens? Well, Peacock and Paramount Plus and every other place out there decides any they want to put a streaming service together. Right, well, here's they the problem. Own content. Everybody else already put a streaming service out. Right. What do you think? Everyone's just going to buy every single streaming service there is? So now what's happening? These streaming services are now trying to combine with competing, <laughs> competing, uh, Brands, yeah. ESPN is calling Fox and Warner Brothers Discovery. And by the way, Warner Brothers and Discovery only came together because their streaming services failed. So they had to combine Warner Brothers, which was Turner, TNT, TBS, and True. Right. They combined with Discovery Channel because Discovery had Discovery Plus. And then they converted HBO Max into now Max. These kind of stories just blow my mind. Actually, they don't blow my mind. It makes you shake your head. It just, people are are so poor at their jobs. I don't understand. I do understand, actually. I do understand how this happens. People are so bad at their jobs, and this is the result of it. This NIL thing was 
this G League Ignite thing was a bad decision from the get-go. First off, these kids played in the G League. Nobody ever heard of them. Nobody ever saw them. No one knows who they are. So now they're getting drafted in your league. Your draft is pointless. What's the whole point of the draft? Like the NFL. We know who these people are. Nobody knows who these people are. And it has hurt everything. If there wasn't so much greed and such poor decision-making, those kids would be playing college basketball. The college game would be better. People would know who they are as they enter your league. Now these guys are entering your league, and nobody knows who they are. So you've you've let, I don't understand how this was so hard to see. Well, according to Adam Silver, they want to change their focus from now G League Ignite to now the state of the entire American youth basketball system. Ah! <laughs> this is great. Adam Silver says, quote, Players are coming into the league incredibly skilled, but that doesn't necessarily translate to being a team basketball player. And then what I'm and By hearing, the way, they're not incredibly skilled. There's another false. They're not incredibly skilled. They're uberly athletic, but they're not skilled. They have no skills. That's the problem. They don't have skills. They're all one-on-one players who don't have the necessary skill. What did Rick Pitino say? He said his guys had no commitment. They were unathletic. Unathletic. They can't do a bounce pass. He's like, we're how many weeks into the season? We can't do a bounce pass. You have Rick Pitino, one of the greatest college basketball coaches of all time, and he's essentially saying the players I have stink. Of course they stink. Look at the system that we have of getting these kids through. It has become a utter disaster, and then it turned into that all-star game last night. Well, he but went, yeah, we've enabled this all throughout society to basically line people's pockets with money to say, oh, I can get so-and-so looked at, and it's just a joke. And this is what it's become. The G League Ignite is going out of business. Wow, who could have predicted that? Well, Silver says they need to refocus on the lower levels of American basketball, also because coaches <laughs> are complaining that there's an inability to play defense. These players are not as prepared as they like them to be. Of course they're not. You go and play in some awful league, and they tell you it's all one-on-one. Don't play any defense. Just showcase yourself. It is all me, 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 and this isn't a surprise. Silver says they need to focus on what they're doing overseas because he said – Quote, there's more of a focus on practice outside of the United States and less the focus on games. The overseas players are laughing at our system, and they should. Our system has become a complete joke and a sham, and the overseas players are absolutely taking us to the woodshed. And I actually think it's quite humorous, to be honest with you. It is funny. I talked about this 10 years ago, about how the system is completely broken. And it's not just basketball. It's all sports. That it is a complete broken system. And basketball, horrendous. Baseball, horrendous. Football, luckily, you can't play any AAU stuff because you can't hit that much. So you can't do that, although they're trying. You know, they're trying to do these seven-on-seven things. But all the other sports, it's completely predictable. I, for one, not in the least bit surprised by any of this. Well, what do you think? Can can the NBA help fix the American basketball system? No, they got poor decision makers in high places in essentially all places of of uh, society, and therefore you will have status quo. There you go. That's three. 
Sports Pass Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. It is a uh, Monday edition on President's Day. Everybody's got the day off, but we are here for you. And when we come back, I'll read off a couple of your text messages that have come in throughout the show that I want to read and react to coming up next. The Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN and the free mobile app. All right, getting ready to get out of here. Um, Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Uh, Mike, the Dodgers signed Yamamoto. He might be the best pitcher on the planet. They also signed Glass now. Have Bobby Miller and Kershaw's are number four. They're fine without Otani pitching this year. You know what? You're right about that. Yeah, I basically, um, we were talking about this earlier, about the Dodgers pitching being a problem. You know, I remembered about Yamamoto, the glass now one is one that i forgot but he's been hurt so much that it's hard to kind of count on him but if he stays healthy yamamoto glass now miller and if kershaw's your four you might be right about that they might be a very um they're a very talented pitching staff with a lot of questions but certainly better than last year shaner and eht says mike i like your lineup a lot with that rate the number four hitter actually comes up to bat in the first. What? With that rate that the number four hitter actually comes up in the first inning, would you end up hitting leadoff the next inning more at four or five? He could be your second leadoff guy. But there's a lot in there. I don't know. It depends. I mean, Turner, Harper, and Bohm. How many times are they going to go one, two, three? So if you think that one of those guys are going to get on base in most games... Schwarber would come up in the first inning. Now, if they go one, two, three, he would be leading off the second inning. So that would be a win-win, right? You get him to lead off an inning like you want anyway. And if not, he comes up with a runner on base almost every single time he's up to bat. Uh, Mike, it would be disappointing if the Eagles didn't face Pittsburgh at the link. Yeah, I don't think you're going to see the Steelers and uh, Eagles play the game in Brazil. That was from back in the 3 o'clock hour. There was a report that Eagles, it looks like, you know, Cleveland might be the team that they end up playing there. Um, But, yeah, I think the Eagles playing the Steelers would probably be uh, something. Mike, the best All-Star game was in 2001. The East was down by 20. With nine minutes to go, Iverson led the comeback, the win. He won the MVP. When he got the award, he thanked Larry Browd. One of the last proud moments for the Sixers. That was when the game was great. I don't know if it was one of the last proud moments for the Sixers, but note it that the All-Star game back then was certainly a better uh, product, a better game, and it meant more. You know, that's what it's about. Like, your guy helps win and you feel like, hey, some inherent pride that our guy was at the All-Star game and was a big part of it. All right, that's about it for me. What else we got? Uh, Nothing tonight. I don't know what I'm going to watch tonight. I don't even have a Netflix show that I'm into right now. We're trying to find something new. Anything particular you're thinking about, or uh, we watched the uh, Harlan Coben, uh, the new one, something say uh, fool me once, I think it was called. It's one of those like Harlan Coben miniseries. You that... like watching stand up comedies on Netflix? 
maybe like on a Saturday afternoon. Oh, okay. I mean, we're looking for, like, we like to get into a show. Yeah, like, these Harlan Cobins are like these 10 episode miniseries, but they go so fast, you're done in like three days. Gotcha. But, you know, something to that, uh, down that way. I was going to say, maybe check out Taylor Tomlinson sometime. I've seen the, the previews for that. I think she's hilarious. So that's, uh, tonight, tomorrow, nothing. No Sixers, no Flyers tonight, tomorrow. You know, you could watch, you could binge watch all six uh, Dave Chappelle stand-ups on Netflix. Maybe. Maybe. That was very non-committed. Yeah, I'm not big on sitting there at night watching that. Maybe on like a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday afternoon when you're kind of like, all these college basketball games are on and not one is like, you're like, ah, let me flip over to the Netflix. All right, I'm back tomorrow. And uh, Josh has game night coming up next right here on the Sports Bash Live. 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app.